to the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily and I'm Rebecca and we are here with our summer special where we're going to share three summer reads each Mm -hmm. to help celebrate the summer solstice so that you have something to do with all that extra light. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah let's just I suppose dive right in. Sure. is your first summer infatuation yeah so i thought i'd just say before Mm. i say (laughs) i actually find this quite hard because i historically have never really been like a seasonal reader Mm -hmm. um because like no matter the season i read a lot of gothic and a lot of horror and fantasy and a lot of those don't have summer vibes yeah so instead i decided to approach this more like which i feel like you've done as well but more like okay it's summer I'm like on a beach or I'm at a pool or I'm in the garden I have an entire day to do nothing but read so what am I reading Mm -hmm. rather than like pick a book that's about summer summer yeah 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 no I I guess I approached it I let's know if we're gonna do this conversation first sure (laughs) um I approached it with the three most summery books that I can think of that are summer vibes I've already talked about on this podcast yeah so then I was like okay so if it's not going to be summery vibes then it's going to be like kind of easy or luxurious or uh yeah like you say a book that you can just kind of spend time on yeah because I feel like when I have a big chunk of time to read I I actually try and read things that aren't my usual Mm go-to Or, like, if they are something that I would usually read, it's something that I've been, like, saving up when I have the time to, like, really read it. Mm -hmm. So, like, the books I picked today, there's a couple that are, like, outside my sort of quote-unquote usual genre. But I think you'll be able to tell why I like them. And then I have one that's, like, a fantasy pick, which is something that I kind of would read any time of year. But I it has a good reason why I'm like I would have waited until like a holiday or something to read it okay intriguing cool so (laughs) I'm interested so yeah so my first one is Sweet Sorrow by David Nichols oh lovely um which is such a lovely book it's so nice um (laughs) it came out in 2019 and this was the first book that came to my head when we were floating around the idea of like summer reads Mm. I did read this one last summer in my mum and dad's garden when we had a heat wave. Oh, um, remember that. Yeah. And it is set in a summer as well. So this is my one that is like on theme. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, so it's set in the summer of 1997 and main character Charlie feels really stuck. He's just finished school and feels very uncertain about his future. Um, his mum and his dad are newly broken up and his dad isn't dealing with it very well. And he's essentially just thinking that his life is like falling apart. Okay. Yeah, we've um, all we've all had a summer like that. Yeah. And then basically by chance he meets this girl, Fran, who he reluctantly follows to an amateur Shakespeare summer camp. Okay. And of course, as he falls in love with Fran, he starts to fall in love with theatre as well. That sounds really nice. It is really nice. <laughs> the thing that I love about this book is that it is about memory and nostalgia and like the storytelling that comes from that so before I say what that means for this book I'm going to read out the epigraph actually it is from so long see you tomorrow by William Maxwell 
What we, or at any rate what I, refer to confidently as memory, meaning a moment, a scene, a fact that has been subject to a fixative and thereby rescued from oblivion, is really a form of storytelling that goes on continually in the mind and often changes with the telling. Too many conflicting emotional interests are involved for life ever to be wholly acceptable, and possibly it is the work of the storyteller to rearrange things so that they conform to this end. In any case, in talking about the past, we lie with every breath we draw. Oh, I love that idea. Me too. (laughs) I feel like I probably have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I just love stories that are self-aware about how, like, memory changes a narrative. Mm -hmm. Like, I love when a narrator can be like, this might not have been what happened, but this is how it felt. (laughs) This is how I remember it. Um in retrospect might not be accurate so yeah I just find it very fascinating and it's also like an idea in the novel that I'm writing so this like novel was quite a good like research (laughs) book Mm. for me I was Um, gonna say the idea of like that summer yeah um, sounds influential Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) yes so yeah as I said this novel is about Charlie Summer in 1997 but it is told from his older self in the present day who is preparing to go to a reunion of this, like, Shakespeare trip. Right. I've totally forgotten to look up what age he is then. It might be 20 years later. It's something like that. It's like an anniversary. Yeah, okay. Um, But they're full-blown grown-up. Um, <laughs> so we get, like, glimpses of his present day, but most of it is Charlie recounting this summer where he met and fell in love with Fran. Okay. Um, and I will actually read from the book and you will see what I mean about like nostalgia and memory and everything. This is from very early on in the book. Charlie's just met Fran um, and she's invited him to this theatre troupe and he says no because he's like, that sounds stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And the chapter ends with, bye Charlie Lewis. I raised my hand and she did too, but I never did go back and that was the last time I ever saw Fran Fisher. I wonder where she is now. And then this is the very next chapter, which is titled First Sight. I know where she is now. I did go back because it was inconceivable that I would not see that face again and of doing so meant half a day of theatre sports then that was the price I'd pay. But perhaps that's not quite true either. Perhaps I'd have forgotten her soon enough. When these stories, love stories, are told, it's hard not to ascribe meaning and inevitability to entirely innocuous chance events. We literally romanticise. One glance and something changed, a flame was ignited, cogs interlocking in some great celestial device. But the love, in love at first sight, is, I suspect, only applied in retrospect. Laid on like an orchestral score when the outcome of the story is known and the looks and smiles and hands brushing against each other can be allocated a significance that they rarely carry in the moment. It's true that I thought she was lovely, but I thought this about someone five to ten times on any given day, and even alone, I thought it while watching TV. It's true that during our first encounter, a clear, insistent voice in my head had told me, concentrate, this will matter, concentrate. And true, too, that part of this was probably just sex, the noise of which underscored almost any conversation that I had with a girl at that time, like a car alarm that no one can turn off. Part of it was a less torrid, more conventionally romantic vision, 
a momentary flash forward to a montage, holding hands, browsing in WH Smith, or laughing on the swings in Dogshit Park, and I wondered what that would look like and feel like, all that company. I had never in my life, before or since, been more primed to fall in love. Catching that fever, I felt sure, would inoculate me against all other worries and fears. I longed for change, for something to happen, some adventure, and falling in love seemed more accessible than, say, solving a murder. But even though I thought she was lovely, I was not touched by some wand. There was no flourish on the harp and no change in the lighting. If I'd been busier that summer, or happier at home, then I might not have thought about her so much, but I was neither busy nor happy, and so I fell. I remember worrying that I wouldn't be able to remember her face, freewheeling it at great speed through the strobing light of that wooded lane, straight in the saddle, wind whipping at my chest. I tried to pair what I could recall with someone familiar, someone off the telly whose face I might use as a template, but no one quite fitted, and before I'd reached the junction and turned toward town, her face had begun to fade like an unfixed photograph. Shape of nose, shade of blue, chipped tooth, the great curve of her skull, the precise constellation of spots and freckles. How would I remember? I had a corny idea that I might draw her as soon as I got home. A few lines, a gesture, the way she tugged at the back of her denim skirt or stored her fringe behind her ear. Until then I'd focus mainly on zombies and alien insects. Perhaps Fran Fisher was my first worthy subject, the something real that Helen had told me to draw, and I continued to summon up her features in the same way that you might try to memorise a phone number. Shape of nose, shade of blue, chipped tooth, the curve of, constellation of... Phone number. Why hadn't I just asked for her phone number? That was what I needed. I'd get it the next time I saw her. Next time. I remember feeling a great surge of jealousy toward her boyfriend without knowing who he was or if he existed. Surely she must have one, because all Chatsborn girls came with a boyfriend of equal beauty and status, constantly doing it in their parents' pills or at drug-fueled sleepless sleepovers. There were kids at Merton Grange who had relationships, but they'd quickly settled into a sort of parody of domesticity, tea on laps in front of the TV, walking around the shops as if trapped in a particularly committed game of mums and dads. Chatsborn kids, on the other hand, were decadent, wild and free like the gilded youth of Logan's Run or foreign exchange students. Of all the markers in the road to adulthood, voting, driving a car, legal drinking, the most elusive for a Merton Grange boy was to see a bra strap without pinging it. To not be a dick, this was the great rite of passage that we had yet to pass through. Even if she were single, why would Fran Fisher be interested in a boy like that, like me? Finally, there was the realisation that any emotions I might have experimentally labelled love were as irrelevant and obsolete as a box of childhood toys. Becky Boyne, Sharon Findlay, Emily Joyce, what had I been thinking? This was an entirely new emotion, and if it was still too early to call it love, then I was prepared to call it hope. None of this could be said out loud. To who? And neither did I have much time to dwell on it, because as I turned back into Thackeray Crescent, I saw the red of the brand new mini, with my sister Billy's face in the back window, looking up from her book, Mum Had Come to Visit. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? If I wasn't prepared to call it love, I would call it hope. I know. 
<laughs> oh. Also, that line, all that company. I don't know. I know. Why. And it's written in like italic. Company is written in mm. italics as well. I'm just like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I lo- I love this because I think it's such, it's such a complex idea trying to capture, the feeling of being a teenager falling in love. Well, the narrator, and obviously Dave Nichols, is a grown adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he writes it really well. The like self-aware lines of being like primed to fall in love, the realization of how like corny or cliche his thoughts were, but all the while like you really believe that's how he felt. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt when I read like Call Me by Your Name, because again it was like a teenage yeah. boy, but it's like an adult man that's like. But you still believe the teenage boy. <laughs> I think as well because even though you're not. A teenager anymore like you still wear so it's easy to make it believable yeah you're like, well I remember what that was like yeah no definitely and yeah just to finish with that quote the book has lots of short chapters like this that was only three pages um, and a lot of them end on those like punchy lines that signal like okay that's the end of this train of thought we're like going into another thing like how it's just like oh mum was home mm. um, which I just think is like a fun feature it makes you want to read on and so yeah, I have, I think I have two more quotes because as well as a nostalgia, I wanted to talk about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, so Charlie does read, he's actually, he's reading Kurt Vonnegut when he meets Fran. Of course he um, is. Obviously. Um, <laughs> but he's not a Shakespeare fan. Mm. Um, and so we get some quite fun moments of him trying to get to grips with the language. And this passage takes place on the day of their first rehearsal. Obviously, the play they're putting on is Romeo and Juliet. Obviously. Um, Fran is Juliet, obviously, um, but Charlie has been cast as Samson, although I think he ends up being Benvolio, if I remember um, correctly. But yeah, this is him looking at his lines for the first time. Okay. On Monday, the fine weather broke, and I lay in bed, listening to the clamour of a whole summer's rain falling. The first rehearsal of Romeo and Juliet was at 9.30, and at 8.45 it was still roaring down, the light as dim as a December afternoon. Perhaps it was a sign. When I was 16, the sole purpose of weather was to send me personal messages, and the rain pelting the window was a hand in my chest saying, Nothing good can come of this. You'll look like a fool. Forget her. Stay in bed. I'd spent the previous afternoon trying to understand the play, revising for a test, the test of Fran's approval. In the rectangle of cement that counted as our garden, I sat as straight and scholarly as the deck chair allowed, took the script from my bag and began to read the prologue. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay are seen. I'd resolved that I would take it slowly, understand each line before I moved on to the next, and to begin with this was fine, easy, practically normal English, the words following one another like handholds until I felt my grip loosen. Where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Because how could blood be civil, and what were civil hands anyway? Whose hands? Civil as in civilian, or as in polite, or as in civil war? There were two civils in the line, and perhaps both civils had all three meanings. Perhaps that was the point. Perhaps it was a play on words. I remember Miss Rice, our old English teacher, telling us not to think of Shakespeare, of any poetry, as something that needs translating. It's not a foreign language, it's this language, your language. But something would have to be done to make this comprehensible, 
not translation exactly, more like the solving of a riddle. Taking it one word at a time, I came up with the blood of civilians dirties hands that should be friendly in the course of the civil war. There, that sounded right. But this was the fourth line of the play, and now I remembered the long, sleepy afternoon spent staring at tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, the instinctive pleasure at the sound of the word turning to frustration as every phrase demanded to be explained, paraphrased, referred to in footnotes, those maddening Yoda-like inversions repaired. Don't worry if your head hurts sometimes, she'd said. That's normal. It's like when you exercise and your muscles ache. Perhaps I was trying too hard. Perhaps Shakespeare was like one of those magic eye paintings that were popular at the time. Find the right balance between focus and relaxation and the picture will emerge. Oh, I get it, someone would shout from the front of the class. But I didn't get it and sat, feeling increasingly stupid and frustrated. Did Fran Fisher struggle like this? Did any of those kids? Misadventures, piteous overthrows. Three random words that might as well have been pig umbrella satellite. I checked the number of pages. 124. A lifetime wasn't long enough to unpick all this stuff, and like generations of actors before me, I decided that I'd concentrate on my own part. Perhaps there'd be something there to make Fran smile. Samson. Gregory, on my words, will not carry coals. Gregory. No, for then we should be colliers. Samson. I mean, and we be in collar, will draw. I slapped the script down onto the cement. I mean, and we be in collar, will draw. Even in Elizabethan England, I imagined black-toothed serfs turning to each other and asking, what did he just say? Something about collar? I'd been told that there were jokes. Collar, collar, collier. These were the jokes. And why was there no D on the and? Why? I closed my eyes and reminded myself that, after the read-through, I would not actually be playing this part. I would just be a means to an end. Aye, tis but a means to an end, I said out loud, picked the play up from the patio and read on. There was some stuff I recognised as body about maiden heads and maids in the line my naked weapon is out, which made me wince because I knew I'd have to point to my groin. Tis well thou art not fish, if thou hadst thou hadst been poor John. I had to say this, in front of Fran, in front of Lucy Tran and Colin Smart and Helen Beavis. Samson, I will bite my thumb, which is a disgrace to them if they bear it. Abram, do you bite your thumb at us, sir? Samson, I bite my thumb, sir. Abram, but do you bite your thumb at us, sir? All in all, this was too much about thumbs. I bit my own at Shakespeare, hooked my fingernail behind my teeth and made a clicking noise. Perhaps Samson came back later with better material. I skimmed a few more pages, words, 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 and found myself back in the classroom, my brain skittering over the surface like a pebble thrown onto thick ice. I closed the script again and closed my eyes. As a kid, I'd once dismantled a broken old watch, determined to repair it for Dad. The initial satisfaction at the intricacy of the workings turning to boredom, then frustration, until I'd simply crammed the cogs and springs back in, taped the whole thing shut, and secretly dropped it down a drain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so relatable. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't have much to say about that. I just, it, it's just relatable. That's exactly um, how I have felt every single time I've tried to read, not just Shakespeare, but anything that someone has been like, you should read this. Yeah. And I have been like, why? <laughs> yeah. Like, even, like, I do quite like Shakespeare, but there are times where I'm just like, I don't, I just don't, I just don't know. <laughs> I like Shakespeare to watch because then it makes absolute sense when you True, see it performed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But trying to read it, just feels, Reading it is different. Feels yeah. like buying your head against the wall. Yeah. So yeah, one more quote which I just wanted to share, which is actually from much later in the book, um, but there's not any spoilers. Nice. I just think it's a sweet way of showing how literature can be quite formative. Okay. We tried to get back to Fran's house before it got dark, but the lanes were unlit and too treacherous to cycle down and so we'd walk. This was the second half of August and I'd become aware of the accelerated shortening of the days and fearful and resentful of it as if our summer together were a coastline succumbing to the waves. The motion of the sun is but the thief of lovers' time and, like autumn waves, wears down the season's fragile shore. It was contagious poetry. This kind of stuff occurred to me more often now, the words, the ideas and feelings all tangled up, and though I had the good sense not to say it out loud, I wondered if I should write it down. And perhaps the play was right in this respect too, that being in love might change not just how you felt, but the way you thought and spoke. Not sonnet form exactly, but as darkness came on we'd talk in a different way, small confessions, revelations, the formation of little private jokes. We already knew each other, now the project was to really know each other. Such transparency involved a fair amount of deception, at least by omission. She'd have run a mile from the real, real me, and any darkness I'd confessed had to be the right kind of darkness. I did not, for instance, tell her I was a thief. But I did tell her all that I was prepared to say about the breakup of my family, my father's breakdown and what it was like to live with this. For perhaps the first time, I trusted someone entirely. There was nothing relaxed about our conversation, but even so I was aware that this was a new way of talking, free of prepared questions and answers. It was both adult and a plausible impersonization of adult, self-consciously earnest, effortfully profound. In short, we were ridiculous, but a part of us knew we were ridiculous and didn't care. And I think now of an illustration I'd once seen in a children's book, Morris Sendak, I think, of children dressed up in grown-up clothing, hats falling off the backs of their heads, long sleeves hanging empty. I love that passage. <laughs> that is very sweet. Yeah, I just think it's done like a good job of, like, of looking back on the summer, and I love how. Like, I love the idea of how literature can hit you in a way you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. um, like, again, how formative it is. And I like that it's he talks about Shakespeare without being too pretentious. Because I, I suppose this is common knowledge, but when, like, Romeo and Juliet meet each other, they start speaking in a sonnet, yeah. which is obviously, like, a romance poem. So he's, like, saying how, like, okay, we didn't speak to each other in sonnets, but we spoke to each other in a different way. And I just think that's really sweet. <laughs> it is really sweet. And I also like that line about, like, we were ridiculous, but we knew that we were ridiculous and we didn't care. Yeah. Because I do think that is very, like, first time you fall in love when you're a teenager. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because you do feel like you're impersonating. It's like you've, you're impersonating a feeling that you've seen. Yeah. But you've never had it before. Yeah. But like, now you have it, but you still feel like you're impersonating it. You're kind of like going through all the cliches. All the motions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
so yeah that is sweet sorrow um i kind of went a bit longer than i meant to on that one but i just think it's very gorgeous and as someone who was born in the 90s it was just fun seeing all the like pop culture references there wasn't really many in that one but there's quite a lot nice and yeah i just think it's a very lovely but bittersweet tale of first love and how maybe that relationship won't last forever but your memories of it always will Mm -hmm. um and yeah i just think I don't know, I think like a coming of age love story is quite an easy read most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's quite a good summer summer story. Nice one. <laughs> I really want to read that now. Yeah, I think you'd like it. Yeah. Okay, what's your first one? So you think you went long. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> my first book is easily my most cliche summer read that I could share. But since the show is going to be out, well it's out now, Yeah. it is of course Everything I Know About Love mm-hmm. by Dolly Alderton. So I have spoken about Alderton's debut novel, Ghosts, on the podcast before. But Everything I Know About Love came first, as you know. Mm-hmm. It is her memoir, which she famously wrote at the grand old age of 28. <laughs> I just want to say something about that first. I love that she wrote a memoir at 28. Mm-hmm. I think it's why it's so successful. Because there's a whole generation that had never seen her own upbringing in book form before. Mm-hmm. There was no one writing fiction or non-fiction about growing up with like MSN chat rooms or reverse charge calls or anything like that because all of that's considered too current in a way that's quite vulgar for fiction. Mm-hmm. There was no one writing memoir about it because people write memoirs about the beginning of their lives and we were the first generation with this beginning. Mm-hmm of like internet and people going to uni like more people going to uni and yeah. like dating apps and stuff like that so I think she got a bit of flack for like grandstanding her own comparatively short life mm-hmm. by writing a memoir at half the age that people usually are when they write them Yeah, but I think it's really cool and really validating to have someone go like my experience so far has meant something and that's been valuable and so has yours Yeah, um, and so I think that when it came out, it was, to me, the epitome of, like, being self-possessed, not self-obsessed, self-possessed. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the key to why it's been so successful, and that is my TED Talk on yeah. this book. I also think Dolly's been very outspoken, where she's, like... Because she already... Even when the paperback came out, so, like, what, about a year after the mm. hardback, she'd written another chapter to be, like, things that I learned at 30. yeah. And she's been very outspoken to be like, like there is things in that book that she like probably doesn't agree with anymore. But she's like, but it's still, it's almost like a little time capsule, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's like that doesn't make it any less valid. Like that's how she felt at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe she'll write another memoir in another twenty eight years, and exactly. then she can do the rest of it. <laughs> like so. Anyway, I just think it's cool. I'd never seen anyone do that before, no, and no. I just I think it's cool that she did. Yeah. So anyway, getting to the actual book. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, it's made up of loads of mad stories from Dolly Alderton's teens and her 20s, and it's kind of interrupted now and then by what I can only describe as, like, the minutiae of the single female experience. So you have recipes, you have wish lists, you have, like, fictitious letters and invitations that were clearly never sent. Mm-hmm. Like, all of those kind of things. It's very fun. And as you can tell from the TV show trailer, if you hadn't read the book, <laughs> the love in this story isn't necessarily romantic it's a story about female friendship yeah so that said dolly is a big romantic 
So the the arc is her learning that love can be platonic. Yeah. So without further ado, here is the first section and probably my favourite section of everything I know about love. <laughs> everything I knew about love as a teenager. Romantic love is the most important and exciting thing in the entire world. If you don't have it when you're a proper grown-up, then you have failed. Just like so many of my art teachers, who I have noted are all miss instead of misses and have frizzy hair and ethnic jewellery. It is important to have a lot of sex with a lot of people, but probably no more than ten. When I'm a single woman in London, I will be extremely elegant and slim and wear black dresses and drink martinis and will only meet men at book launches and exhibition openings. The mark of true love is when two boys get in a physical fight over you. The sweet spot is drawn blood but no one having to go to a hospital. One day this will happen to me if I'm lucky. It is important to lose your virginity after your 17th birthday but before your 18th birthday. Literally, even if it's just the day before, that's fine, but if you go into your 18th year still a virgin, you will never have sex. You can snog as many people as you like, and that's fine. It doesn't mean anything, it's just practice. The coolest boys are always tall and Jewish and have a car. Older boys are the best kind because they're more sophisticated and worldly, and also they have slightly less stringent standards. When friends have boyfriends, they become boring. A friend having a boyfriend is only ever fun if you have a boyfriend too. If you don't ask your friend about their boyfriend at all, they'll eventually get the hint that you find it boring and they'll stop going on about him. It's a good idea to get married a bit later in life and after you've lived a bit, say 27. Farley and I will never fancy the same boy because she likes them short and cheeky like Nigel Harmon and I like them macho and mysterious like Charlie Simpson from Busted. This is why our friendship will last forever. No moment in my life will ever be as romantic as when me and Lauren were playing that gig on Valentine's Day at that weird pub in St Albans and I sang Lover You Should Come Over and Joe Sawyer sat at the front and closed his eyes because earlier we'd talked about Jeff Buckley and basically he's the only boy I've ever met who fully understands me and where I'm coming from. No moment in my life will ever be as embarrassing as when I tried to kiss Sam Lehman and he pulled away from me and I fell over. No moment in my life will ever be as heartbreaking as when Will Young came out as gay and I had to pretend I was fine about it, but I cried while I burned the leather book I was given for my confirmation, in which I'd written about our life together. Boys really like it when you say rude things to them, and they find it babyish and uncool if you're too nice. When I finally have a boyfriend, little else will matter. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Oh, it's so funny. I think it's great because that passage is like, the antithesis of not like other girls. Mm-hmm. It's like the caricatured every girl. Yeah. But it's, I think what I really like is that it's fondly done. Like she's, even when she's roasting her past self, she's never really roasting it. No, no. She's sort of like, there's very little actual regret or self flagellation. She's mm-hmm. just like, oh, I was an idiot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's fun. Um, but. <laughs> Like you were just saying, a feature of this book that I love is how nostalgic that it is, which obviously it is because it's a memoir, mm-hmm. but particularly like the references yeah. in the time period. This is just a very short passage, but... For some, the sound that defined their adolescence was the joyful shrieks of their siblings playing in the garden. For others, it was the chain rattle of their much-loved bike hobbling along hills and vales. Some will recall birdsong as they walked into school, or the sound of laughing and footballs being kicked in the playground. For me, it was the sound of AOL dial-up internet. I can still remember it now, note for note. 
the tinny initial phone beeps, the reedy half-finished squiggles of sound that signalled a half-connection, the high one note that told you some progress was being made, followed by two abrasive low thumps, some white fuzz. And then the silence indicated that you had broken through the worst of it. Welcome to AOL, said a soothing voice in the upward inflection on the O. Followed by, you have an email. I would dance around the room to the sound of the AOL dial-up to help the agonising time pass quicker. I choreographed a routine from things I'd learnt in ballet. A plié on the beeps. A padishah on the thumps. I did it every night when I came home from school because that was the soundtrack of my life because I spent my adolescence on the internet. (laughs) And I just think, first of all, if you don't remember that sound, you are actually too young. (laughs) (laughs) like we are a different generation (laughs) yeah but also like there's something so sweet and childish about her doing like the wee dance yeah um and she uses that nostalgia very well like because obviously she reels you in there and you're like oh i relate and then she just twists the knife into your heart and gets you to love farley who is her best friend and the (sighs) the true main character yeah this is the nicest little passage. (laughs) Farley was, and still is, different to any other person in my life. We met at school when we were 11 years old. She was and remains the total opposite to me. She is dark, I am fair. She is a little too short, I am a little too tall. She plans and schedules everything, I leave everything to the last minute. She loves order, I'm inclined towards mess. She loves rules, I hate rules. She is without ego. I think my piece of morning toast is important enough to warrant broadcast on social media, three channels. She is very present and focused on tasks at hand. I am always half in life, half in a fantastical version of it in my head. But somehow we work. Nothing luckier has ever happened in my life than the day Farley sat next to me in a maths lesson in 1999. The order of the day with Farley was always exactly the same. We'd sit in front of the television eating mountains of bagels and crisps, though only when our parents were out. Another trait of the suburban middle classes is that they are particularly precious about sofas and always have a strictly no-eating living room, and watching American teen sitcoms on Nickelodeon. When we'd run out of episodes of Sister Sister and Two of a Kind and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, we'd move on to the music channels, staring slack-jawed at the TV screen while flicking between MTV, MTV Bass and VH1 every 10 seconds, looking for a particular Usher video. When we were bored of that, we'd go back to Nickelodeon Plus One and watch all the episodes of the American teen sitcoms we had just watched an hour earlier, on repeat. (laughs) So this is a book that relishes media Mm -hmm. and is definitely not worried about ageing itself. No. um, Which I think is good because it's about real life. Yeah. But the fact that Dolly devours and spits out references with so much speed, it's like watching Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yes. Like, it's, I think it's a great way to do memoir, though, because it feels like you're peering inside her brain. Like, all this media that, like, collates to become a person. Yeah, it's very, I, I said it earlier, it's very, like, time capsule-like. Yeah. yeah. And it's a great way to connect to your target audience. Yeah, So, yeah, like, yeah. make intimacy. yeah. Um, it's almost like like there was a bit in Sweet Sorrow about like the inside jokes in the wee inner world. Yeah. It's like when you're going out with somebody and then you have like songs that are your songs and mm-hmm. films that are your films. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I think that's that's clever. 
And she actually goes on to talk about that particular phenomenon in my next favourite bit, <laughs> which is everything I know about love at 25. Mm. Oh, I just realised I was younger than 25 when I first read this book. Same. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> everything I know about love at 25. Men love a woman who holds it all back. Make them wait five dates to have sex with you, three dates at the very least. That's how you keep them interested. The boyfriends of your best friends will annoyingly stick around. Most of them won't be exactly who you imagined your best friend would end up with. Suspenders and stockings can be bought cheap and in bulk on eBay. Online dating is for losers and I include myself in that. Be endlessly suspicious of people who pay to have an embarrassing profile on a dating website. Forget what I said earlier about using hair removal cream when you're dating someone. If you go bald, you're letting the sisterhood down. We need to actively take a stand against the patriarchal control of the female anatomy. Never make an album as good as Blood on the Tracks, our album with a boyfriend, because years after you break up, you still won't be able to listen to it. Don't make that mistake at 21. If a man loves you because you are thin, he's no man at all. If you think you want to break up with someone, but practical matters are getting in the way, this is the test. Imagine you could go into a room and press a big red button that would end your relationship with no fuss. No breakup conversations, no tears, no picking your things up from his house. Would you do it? If the answer is yes, you have to break up with them. If a man has always been single at 45, there's a reason. Don't hang around to find out what it is. The worst feeling in the world is being dumped because they say they don't fancy you anymore. Always bring a man back to your house and then you can trick him into staying for breakfast and trick him into falling in love with you. Casual sex is rarely good. Fake orgasms will make you feel guilty and terrible and they're unfair on the guy. Use them sparsely. Some women get lucky and some women don't. There are good guys and bad guys. It's sheer luck who you end up with and how you will get treated. Your best friends will abandon you for men. It will be a long and slow goodbye, but make your peace with it and make some new friends. On long, lonely nights when your fears crawl over your brain like cockroaches and you can't get to sleep, dream of the time you were loved in another lifetime, one of blood and toil. Remember how it felt to find shelter in someone's arms. Hope that you'll find it again. <laughs> so this is interesting to read mm-hmm. because I read this when it came out in 2018, which would have made me 23. Cool. So, so was, I was 22 then. Yeah. Interesting. Which is two years shy of 25. Yeah. And I didn't really relate to a lot of it. And now I'm 27, which is two years gone of 25. And there are little bits of it that are obviously the true bits to me and Mm -hmm. the other bits are obviously the parody in the same way that the teenage bit was parody. Yeah. But that's interesting because I'm obviously now just kind of beyond that age. Yeah. So I wonder if there is a section later on about Love at 28 that I'm not going to read out, but I wonder if by the time you're like 30, if you look back at the 25 one, you're like, all of that's bullshit. (laughs) I think well I think that's the reason that she wrote them because yeah. I I think cuz yeah obviously it is parody but I think she is actually diving into like what did I actually no. think yeah. or what did I yeah but like, like what did I believe to be true at like, that age obviously there's but there's really true like if a man loves you because you're thin he's no man at all but yeah that's pretty true the breakup bit about like if mm. you could self destruct it and there'd be no yeah yeah, yeah. fuss you the have man to being do it. single at forty five is 
is pretty yeah, yeah don't <laughs> don't stay for to find out why that is um casual sex is really good mm. you know so like that's what i mean there are, <laughs> there's like things that ring really true but then you know your best friends will abandon you for men no they won't no but that's like <laughs> but that's how she felt but but you i can be like that is how it feels sometimes yeah like yeah so yeah it totally yeah i just think it's really interesting i think it's going to be fun to go back to this book over and over again yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so this book is obviously very funny but i feel like it's got a similar thing to like dairy girls or fleabag that like the british wit makes the emotional bits hit harder Mm, mm -hmm. and this kind of writing probably seems really common now but when it came out i hadn't really read anything like it and one of the things in it that always gets me is how tenderly she writes about Farley when mm. she's so acerbic about everything else. <laughs> so this is a little tiny excerpt about them and it's between Dolly giving a guy Farley's number and then Farley going on a date with him. Right. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I think it's important that I pause here to do a bit of explaining so you're aware of why I single white female my way through the rest of this story. My friendship with Farley was not instantaneous. She spent her first year at school tightly bound to a group of power princesses. They were a brand of North London suburban girls who ruled school. They had blonde highlights, Tiffany jewellery and anecdotes from Brady, a social and sports club in Edgware for Jewish teenagers, the China White of the suburbs. I, on the other hand, wore a lot of black at the weekends and spent time at school devising plays in the drama department, trying to depict the trauma of a plane crash using only a wooden block. But we were put in the same classes for French and maths and we soon discovered we had a shared sense of humour and a passion for the sound of music and watermelon lip balms. Our out-of-hours friendship started tentatively after a few months of sitting next to each other in lessons. I invited her round to my house first and my mum made roast chicken. My dad did that thing he does with all my friends when he holds on to one fact about them in panic to find a common language and then brings it up every other sentence. With Farley, this is anything pertaining to Jews or Judaism, which he has continued to do for around 10 years, saying things like, Have you seen Sir Alan Sugar has had to downsize Amstrad? Great shame. Or, I saw an advert recently for reduced flights to Tel Aviv. Must be lovely. Hot weather there at the moment. But after a slow start, we were inseparable. We spent every moment we could together at school, and when we got home, we wolfed down our dinners and called each other to go through any other business we forgot to cover our various meetings throughout the day. So ingrained was this ritual that even now I can recall Farley's mum's landline number between the years of 2000 to 2006 quicker than I can remember my credit card pin. I hated school and was often getting in trouble. Age 12, after a suspension, bust up with my deputy head and a detention, I returned to lessons for geography with a teacher who particularly disliked me. We were asked to get out our exercise books, which I had forgotten to bring as I did with everything when I was a kid. I was a disaster. Every year at the Christmas party, a bin bag was awarded as the Dolly Alderton Prize for disorganisation. The chosen pupil had to go round the school and pick up all her belongings she'd left lying around. I hated it. Where's your exercise book? The teacher asked, peering down at my desk, her sour breath curdled with Nescafe and cigarettes. I forgot it, I muttered. Oh, there's a surprise, she said, raising her voice to the volume of a public announcement and pacing around the classroom. She forgot it. Has there been a day in your life where you haven't forgotten something? It's a book. One book. It's not difficult. 
She slammed her board rubber down on my desk. My face reddened and I felt the rising nausea of holding hot tears at the back of my throat. Farley squeezed my hand underneath the table twice, fast and hard. I knew what it meant. A universal, silent Morse code for, I'm here, I love you. At that moment, I realised that everything had changed. We had transitioned. We had chosen each other. We were a family. Farley and I had always been each other's plus ones for every day of each other's lives. We were each other's sidekicks at every family dinner, every holiday, every party. We have never properly rowed unless steaming drunk on a night out. We have never lied to each other. In over 15 years, I have never gone more than a few hours without thinking about her. I only make sense with her there to act as my foil and vice versa. Without the love of Farley, I am just a heap of frayed and half-finished thoughts, of blood and muscle and skin and bone and unachievable dreams in a stack of shit teenage poetry under my bed. My mess only takes a proper shape with that familiar and favourite piece of my life standing next to me. We know the names of all our grandparents and our childhood toys, and we know the exact words that when put in a certain order will make the other laugh or cry or shout. There isn't a pebble on the beach of my history that she has left unturned. She knows where to find everything in me, and I know where all her stuff is too. She is, in short, my best friend. (laughs) It's just so sweet. I know. (laughs) And this is obviously like a beautiful passage, right? She's... (laughs) She's really good at detail. Yeah. It's the infatuated mission statement, people. (laughs) But what gets me, right, is that she's just pinned that whole bit there like a parenthesis in the middle of Farley's love story with her boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that breaks my heart. Like, when you're telling a story to someone who doesn't know all the people and you give wee signifiers, like, oh, so, like, like, Jeff, who's the guy I used to work at at Tesco... Mm-hmm. And Dolly's doing that, but she's like, okay, Farley, the like single most important person in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. I think it's very true of best friends to not explain it unless you have to, and then when you start, you can't do it casually at all. Yeah. So yeah, that's oh, it's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful book. <laughs> um, I want you to just. I have like I'm nearly done. Don't worry. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but I. Want you to just give an example of like the miscellaneous content in this book? Yeah. Because I feel like that's something that I've not touched on. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the lists in the book, which just they happen. I'd say probably about every twelve, thirteen pages. There's a random interjection, and this one is the most annoying things people say. <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna have a starter. Are you? I'm more of a boys' girl. I'm a natural salesperson. I'm engaged. <laughs> You're always late. You were quite drunk last night. You've told me this story before. He says it like it is. She's very handsome. I think you need a glass of water. I'm quite OCD. We've got a very complicated relationship. Would you like to sign Alison's birthday card? <laughs> Alison. <laughs> Let's go on mass. Let's have a catch up. Are you across this? Which I feel like is a very English thing. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe was a size 16. You are due your next dental appointment. When was the last time you backed it up? How do you find the time to do all those tweets? Sorry, it's been mental. 
and holly bobs oh holly bobs <laughs> oh i yeah. hate that oh i do say let's have a catch up quite a lot i say um what's the one i say you've told me the story before a lot to people when they have see i thought so i i kind of do it but i'll be like oh yeah you told me before but i mean like yeah. keep tell me again because i quite like hearing people's stories again i'm more but... i try to do it when they're like i can tell they're gonna go back to the beginning and they've got a new bit to add on oh i see and yeah. i'm like you so told you me like, this just bit. skip to that i'm like I, yeah, yeah you told me this bit <laughs> <laughs> i'm like yeah get to, get to the next <laughs> but if you get me in a bad mood i am quite a bitch about it i'll just be like yeah you've told me this <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny. Yeah. So yeah, uh, those those little bits are good for lightening the mood after the really serious <laughs> emotional bits. Yeah. And this one is the bit of the book that I think made me laugh the most. Okay. Um, it's it's quite a long quote, but I'm gonna read all of it because this is a made up party invitation. <gasps> It's yeah. the best bit. Yeah. It's the best bit. Detailing exactly how each stage of a party is supposed to go. <laughs> and so for context for all you listeners, we just threw a party. <laughs> and when I read this, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> my anxiety about this party. <laughs> it's called Dear Friends. Dear friends who I normally only ever get completely leathered with. I'd love to have you round to witness my attempt at behaving like an adult. Some call this a dinner party, but I think that sounds a bit stuffy, so I'm going to call it something vague enough to seem relaxed, but nothing that hints at an ease-up, like a get-together, or some food and drinks, or a casual chilled-out dinner. The important thing is, this definitely won't be an ease-up. Please arrive at my flat at 7 o'clock. By which I mean, please plan to arrive at 7 o'clock until you get a very panicked message from me at 6 o'clock asking you to come at 8 o'clock because I couldn't find kohlrabi anywhere for Jamie Oliver's Asian slaw so I had to get a £25 Uber to Waitrose and back and it put me behind an hour. As I said, it's all very chilled and casual. Stop in a moment to just be like, Dolly's the most middle class person in the world and she does know this. Yeah. Um, Because she does Uber to Waitrose. (laughs) We do not Uber to Waitrose. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Resuming. <clears throat> the guest list is as follows. One times outrageous gay friend, brackets, Ed, who is happy sharing colourful stories from his varied sex life. He will be the sort of truth-telling court jester of the evening. Think Julian Clary meets gravediggers in Hamlet. One times benevolent new boyfriend belonging to Ed, name to be confirmed, who everyone will make a huge effort with until just after the main course, when he will be largely ignored until he books an early Uber home, but no one will realise he's left until two hours later. One times northern feminist friend, Anna, who will make Ed feel more comfortable because of her liberal outlook and left-leaning politics and vice versa. One times single man I don't know that well from work, Matthew, who will flirt with everyone. Matthew isn't generically attractive, but he's tall and has a loud voice. The plan is that everyone will fancy him as they get drunker and realise he's the best of a bad bunch. A bit like how we all felt about Nick Clegg in the 2010 election. (laughs) (laughs) One times posh engaged couple, Max and Cordelia, to add a touch of grown-up hominess to the evening. They will happily talk about every detail of their upcoming wedding to keep things ticking over in moments of conversational sparseness. Note, keep Max and Anna apart from each other when talk turns to the welfare state or climate change. One time slaggy friend who drinks too much, Leslie, who will make us all feel like we are in the white heat of youth while simultaneously making us feel better about our lives. Thanks for this, Leslie. She will also take the lead in documenting the evening on Instagram with a hashtag such as 
agent's law gives me more or sinners having dinner or something to this effect. Please bring a bottle of wine. I will assume you'll bring Oyster Bay as it's the only one we all know that isn't rubbish tasting but also costs only a tenner. Jacob's Creek will do. Echo Falls is of course welcomed but its price point will be noted. After throwing all your coats on a bed and giving you a glass of warm white wine of which I will have already consumed half the bottle before you arrive out of sheer anxiety induced by the earlier challenge Annika chased for kohlrabi, I will present you with four bags of kettle chips. This will be your starter. Having set myself the challenge of making eight separate dishes to follow the trend of what everyone calls mega-relaxed Ottolenghi-style dining, I will be absent for the first two hours of the evening. Safe suggested topics of conversation for the semi-sober are as follows. The efficiency of the Victoria Line. Comparing respective rent costs. Recent celebrity deaths. Hairdresser recommendations. Who will be the next Bond? The dollar-pound exchange rate on a recent trip to New York. How much water we should actually all be drinking. Any play currently in production featuring a recognisable TV actor. Budgeting apps. And bedding. Dinner will be at 10pm. By this point, everyone will be drunk enough to make sexual innuendos relating to the meal. Have you got hummus up your end? Let's toss the salad, etc. But not quite drunk enough to all get their phones out and watch mildly amusing videos on YouTube. This will happen after the main course and before pudding. Suggested videos. News reporter bloopers. Cats getting stuck in things. Children getting upset about missing chocolate. Dogs falling asleep in odd places. Any Louis C.K. routine. That did not age well. (laughs) Anything with Celine Dion. Leslie, it would be great if you could incorporate drugs into the evening after this, either by sharing some old weed you have in your handbag or texting your dealer for some cocaine. If you plump for the latter, everyone will put up a bit of a fight, citing being so skint this month or not having done it since two birthdays ago, but rest assured, they still want it and will cough up when the Candyman arrives. If you do go for the second option, Cordelia and Max will have an argument, as Max will offer to pay for an extra gram. Cordelia will be confused. They're apparently too broke to have a string quartet, play signed, sealed, delivered as she walks down the aisle, but he's willing to drop 60 quid on Class A drugs for a room full of people he barely knows. Past midnight, it's time to get on to what I will call the pointless and trite debating portion of the evening. This house believes in something obvious I read in a Guardian column versus this house believes in something slightly less obvious I read on a Vice blog. All topics and opinions will be broad, non-committal and predictable with made-up statistics and exaggerated personal anecdotes to support flimsy arguments. Suggested subjects. Is there such a thing as left-wing or right-wing anymore? If women want genders to be equaled, why is it called feminism and not equalism? Is this art if I could make it? Why do we eat pigs but not dogs? What is the legacy of Tony Blair according to all of our parents that we will pass off as our own opinions? How late is too late to have children? Was Margaret Thatcher a feminist? Will soaring London property prices mean that people will move to Margate? Is it okay for Matthew to be wearing a Ramones t-shirt despite not being able to name one of the Ramones or any of their songs? When things get too heated between Max and Ed during homosexuality, nature or nurture, it's time for Leslie's drunk overshare in which she will reveal a secret about herself in a long and winding monologue to a silent audience. Suggestive confessions for Leslie. You don't like any Welsh people. (laughs) (laughs) Recent chlamydia contraction. Your uncle groping you as a teenager. Affair with a married man. You think you can communicate with the dead. You think voting is pointless and boring. Fear of infertility. Scheduled times of departure. Ed, 4am, after he's proved he knows the original dance routine to hearsays, pure and simple, and every word of Lil' Kim's rap for Lady Marmalade. 
Cordelia at 2am because of a made up brunch the next morning, Max 2.30am after getting an angry text for Cordelia to come home, Matthew and Anna 4.15am in the same Uber, Leslie 4pm the following day. Really looking forward to it guys, will be so good to have a chilled one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh it's just so good and so accurate. passages that really makes me laugh (laughs) I think as well like I started doing the dolly voice as I I was reading it because you can't not Yeah, because the voice is so strong (laughs) oh anyway yeah so that's my favourite summary (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that half hour (laughs) more what's your next one I think I'm going to do my third one because it's slightly more, it's like on theme. Okay. So I'll I'll skip ahead and we'll come back to my other one. So I have a memoir as well. Nice. Because I, I knew you were going to talk about everything I know about love. That would have been one of mine, but I, I knew you were going to do it, so it's mm. fine. <laughs> um, I appreciate that, thank you. But this is a book that is about life after a breakup traveling with friends and lots of drinking nice <laughs> so it's sort of on theme it's yeah. like the american version um it's i've got this round more tales of debauchery by <laughs> mamory hart <laughs> mamory hart is a comedian actress podcaster she has a youtube channel called you deserve a drink and her first memoir which came out in 2015 was called this she must have been around the same age of dolly actually mm. And that was all about her, like, wild 20s. Um, Each chapter was, like, a different story from her life that came with a corresponding cocktail. Right. And that book is so fun. Um, But I'm actually going to talk about her second memoir, which came out in 2018, called I've Got This Round. So to explain what it's about, I'm actually just going to read out her introduction. Okay. Um, And this will also introduce you to the writing style, which is very memory. Okay. Which you will know from when you've seen, like, her podcast on when I've had it on Um, but I'm excited to introduce everyone to this voice (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to hear you read this voice I'm really going to, memory's really southern, I'm not but I I will try my best so this is just the introduction the day after my first book You Deserve a Drink came out I was sitting down for lunch surrounded by my team comprised of my manager, agents, editor and PR people, the whole ridiculous shebang As I sipped my mid-morning martini, I thought to myself, well, look at you, Miss Hart. A few years ago, you were begging people to come to your comedy show in this neighbourhood, watching them throw your flyers in the trash can two seconds after you handed it to them. Now you're sitting here all fancy. Enjoy it, girl. You've earned it. But before I could break into a choreoed number to I'm Every Woman in my head, I was snapped out of my daydream. So, what are we thinking for the next book? One of the suits asked me. I froze like I just realised I was sitting at a table of T-Rexes. Next one, I thought. This one's been out for 24 hours. Then another spoke up. Yes, when can we expect a follow-up? I gulped down that lemon drop with a plastered-on smile, nodding and looking attentive, while internally I was losing it. Those were all my stories, I thought. It took me 31 years to collect them. I don't have anything left to tell. Besides, most of them happened in my early 20s. I'm in my 30s now. I don't have that kind of energy anymore. 
but when a huge publishing company named after a flightless bird wants another book, you say yes. When I got back to LA, where I'd been living for about a year, I wondered how I was going to pull this off. Well, lots of authors fabricate stories for their books, maybe I can just make some up. That's not that bad, right? Of course it's bad. There's nothing I hate more than listening to someone tell a story and knowing that they are exaggerating. Back to the drawing board. Maybe I can just leave the business entirely, retire at the top of my game. I took a, she's written shot, but it's scored out and it says deep breath. This wasn't me. I am not a person who is scared of challenges. My motto has been and always will be fucking prove it. It's true. Whenever someone in my life says they want to do something, I say, well, fucking prove it. This can be as simple as someone saying they're going to belly flop into a pool or make out with someone at a bar to bigger things like going back to school or finally writing that movie idea they've told me the plot of 800 times. I needed to heed my own advice. I needed to fucking prove it. So I did. For the next year and a half, I actively sought out the weirdest and funniest adventures I could find. Luckily, I can make YouTube videos from the road and I avoid going on auditions at all costs, so getting out of town was actually feasible. I'd adventure in a new city, and then my sunglasses on, hungover self would write up the tale on the plane home so as not to forget any details. But this book isn't just stories of random boozy adventures and wacky celeb run-ins. See, while I was off acting like a free spirit, indulging in those overpriced plane spirits, I was also dealing with a major turning point in my life, the end of a decade-long relationship. Initially, I thought I'd keep the breakup out of this book. Hell, what better way to deal with an emotional earthquake than pretending it's not happening and getting the hell out of town, right? Turns out, you can't leave those feelings. They are your constant carry-on. As I was writing, I realised I couldn't just tell you about my wild night in Paris and leave out the fact that I was bawling like an idiot. Or pretend like my summer of mayhem wasn't in part due to being single and also living alone for the first time in my adult life. I went into the writing process for this book expecting it to be an easy follow-up another collection of random debauchery, except this time in my early 30s. But, turns out, when I sat at that table sipping that teeny in Rockefeller Centre, I wasn't just about to start a new writing project. I was about to start a new chapter in my life, and that's what I've documented here. Between the travel and the life-changing circumstances, this book is my eat, pray, love, except it would be more accurately titled Drink, Drink, Drink. This book is the closest thing I've had to a diary since the Hello Kitty one I kept in in the fifth grade, which I used to write thorough reviews of Spin the Bottle, and it's by and large the most vulnerable I've ever been in public, which at first made me hesitant. But it's like they always say, you can't spell vulnerable without all rub even. By they, I mean me looking at an online anagram generator, but weirdly enough that phrase actually ties the book together nicely. I started off solid like a rock, threw myself into a tumbler of mayhem, and came out feeling polished and smooth, ready to skip along any tough waters that came my way. Wow, did I just invent a beautiful metaphor? Someone call Oprah. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to finish there, but she goes on to explain how to turn the book into a drinking game. Oh, fun. Um, (laughs) So, I love this memoir because it's quite unlike any other I've read before. Um, it's really funny, there's lots of like sassy footnotes, Memory's life is truly wild, um, so I feel like I'm living vicariously through her some of the time. But also it does have a depth to it, um, she very eloquently talks about this breakup and amongst all of the chaos, 
and as well like everything I know about love there's a big focus on friendship in these stories too which is just really lovely to read about because it's made up of stories of all these different countries that memory goes to it's quite hard to pick out quotes without like having to read the whole chapter mm. <laughs> um, however I did find one bit that works out of context and um, like you said and everything I know about love she she often has little bits that are just like random mm. segues so this is in a chapter called long lasting friendships and it's all about wine okay so I thought I would read that out today I remember when I was first introduced to my dear friend wine I'll be honest she didn't give me the best first impression I was 10 years old and attending communion at my grandma's Episcopalian church in Panama City. Back in Boonville, where the country was still dry and people didn't eat bland food if they didn't have to, communion didn't have real wine and stale wafers. It was Welch's and Hawaiian potato bread. But not at Grand's church. I took a sip from the chalice, thinking I was about to have a cold, crisp grape juice crossed by Jesus himself's feet and nearly spat it back in the minister's face. It was warm. And in my kid brain, I thought it must have gone bad. A handful of years later, and I would be back to the bottle, drinking Pink Boone's Farm at a party. I thought I had gone bad ass. Luckily, as an adult, I realised that calling Boone's Farm wine is like calling Olive Garden authentic Italian. I'm into the real stuff now. The cabs and Merlots and Pinots and Sarahs. Remember that song from the 90s, Mambo Number no. 5, where Lou Bega lists all the girls he loves? The Monicas, the Ericas, the Ritas. Just change all those ladies' names to types of wine and that is my anthem. A lot of people get intimidated by wine because there are so many different options. I get it. Sometimes when I'm supposed to pick out where to go to for dinner, I'll have 30 tabs opened on my phone comparing menus until I eventually say fuck it and eat a bag of baby carrots. But there's no reason to be intimidated by wine. Wine is your friend. And just like how you would want to hang out with certain friends in certain circumstances, I'm going to give you a crash course on what wines to drink when. Let's start... (laughs) Such a good line. (laughs) This is also a good line. It's making me laugh. Let's start with reds. Let's start with reds, because the phrase let's start with whites just sounds inherently racist. (laughs) Cabernet. This is your ride or die bitch. Super dependable. Cabs are often full-bodied and can have fruity and peppery notes. She's easy to get along with but can occasionally surprise you with a little kick depending on the day. Go split a rack of ribs with this one because you're going to need a belly base coat for a long night. Cabs are so easy to drink with you'll definitely be getting a cab home. Merlot. Merlot gets a lot of shit for being a basic bitch. But basic is just another word for popular, and speaking as my high school self, there ain't nothing wrong with being popular. We're not living in the movie Cruel Intentions. Sometimes people are popular because they are just nice and get along with everyone. Same with Merlot. Pinot Noir. This is your skinny bitch friend. Not a ton of depth with this one. It's like when you're going to hang with a friend you know isn't going to have a convo with you about religion or politics. While hanging out with them can still be fun, this is more of a let's get lunch friendship, not necessarily a dinner date, especially because you know she's not going to want to share any fatty appetisers. Shiraz. Have you seen the movie Rough Night? Shiraz is basically Kate McKinnon's character. This is a spicy, earthy as hell wine that packs a punch. If it had a human job, it would be a doula. 
like super interesting to talk to for a while but you don't want to be cornered by her for too long at a party it's overwhelming Chianti and I don't know how to pronounce this one San- Sangiovese? Sangiovese Sangiovese these bitches are Italian and bold as fuck <laughs> I'm talking the type who won't sit with her back facing the door in case there's a hit on her Best paired with Italian food, obs. Her flavours are loud and will usually wake me up with a solid headache the next morning. And now let's talk about some whites, shall we? These are the girls who are usually a touch lighter and sweeter. The types of gals you can cosy up to for a little daytime hair of the dog after a long night with your red friends. Chardonnay. Um, who invited their aunt to this party? I kid. Chardonnay is delicious, but it often has an oaky buttery vibe. It's decadent. It's eccentric. Just like grabbing drinks with an older family member, you've really got to be in the mood for it. And even when you were enjoying it, you'd probably want to limit it to a glass or two. Sauvignon Blanc. With its tendency to be fruity and floral, consider this the flower crown of whites. A Coachella girl in a glass. While it's sweet and fun and great to hang with on a hot day, there isn't a lot of depth to Sauv Blanc. They kind of all blend in together and, personally, hanging out with them too much can give me a terrible headache. Pinot Grigio. You honestly cannot go wrong with Pinot Grigio. She's the friend you can bring to any party, any social circle, and she's going to get along with everyone. Not because she's particularly interesting, but because she's completely inoffensive. She's the girl your high school boyfriend ends up marrying, and when you meet her for the first time, she's fine, very pleasant, but nothing really sticks out. Which makes sense because he was a dud and him dumping you before college was the equivalent of Neo dodging those bullets in the Matrix. A gift that I use every time my friend is being rejected by a dude, by the way. White Zinfandel. I'm not mad at White Zin, but do I want to drink it? Hell no. The hue alone makes me immediately hungover. But I don't think it should have the bad rap it does. Not any more than... Rosé. I'm gonna get real here and a lot of you might not agree with me. Rosé is basically White Zinfandel with a classier name and a lot more adorable t-shirts made in honour of it. There are so many Rosé all day tote bags but no Zin for the win when I can't tell the damn difference between the two. Rosé is like that friend who has always been a little trashy and self-deprecating but now she has a British boyfriend so she's somehow cultured. Like how Lindsay Lohan all of a sudden has a weird European accent now when you know that bitch is from Long Island. That said, hand me a glass of sparkling rosé and I will immediately act like I'm on a yacht in Monte Carlo and forbid anyone to make eye contact with me. And just like friendships, may I suggest trying all of these on for size? What you got along with in your 20s might not be your ideal pairing in your 30s. People evolve and so do their tastes and holy hell of that is not a perfect segue into the next chapter, one that you might want to pour a glass of your favourite friend to have on standby, I don't know what is. (laughs) Oh, uh, that's I just, so fun! It is fun. I like how in depth she goes as well. I, that is how I said. You know, when someone's like, "Let's assign things to things." Yeah, that is how in depth I think about it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I do too. And also, like, I I'm not like a ma- I don't know a lot about wine, and I kind of forgot this chapter existed until I was looking through this book, and I'm like. I'm literally going to refer to that from now on. <laughs> like, I feel like it must be true because I like Sauvignon Blanc for the reasons <clears throat> that she just said. Yeah. And I also feel that way about sparkling rosé. Same. And I like my favourite red wine is Shiraz and I feel like that tracks for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I believe you, Mamrie. Yeah. You thought about this. 
I also had like flashbacks to reading that chapter from Poison for Breakfast where Lemony Snicket tells you about all the ways that you can prepare eggs. Yes. <laughs> like it's the same vibe. So yeah, I I love that memoir. I feel like YouTuber books get a bit of a bad reputation. They used to be like quite big in like 2016, 17. Mm. But I really do recommend this one. Um, if you don't follow memory, I still think it's quite a fun read. Some of the places she goes to, by the way, like she does go to Paris, she goes to Cannes at one Ooh. point, goes to the Moulin Rouge, she has quite a funny story about that. Um, like a bunch of places in America, like it's just, it's just fun. Um, oh, she goes on a um, Backstreet Boys cruise. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you do like the sound of her, I also recommend her podcast with fellow internet creative person, Grace Helbig. It's called This Might Get Weird. It's just a really good podcast where they just literally just talk about their weird lives. Mm. So yeah, that was my number two. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> What's your second one? Mine is very much another Rebecca classic. Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't get through a favourites episode without bringing up Lisa Crossmith. Mm. And now I finally get to talk about her short story collection so we can glow <laughs> in detail. Um, I've referred to this so many times and be yeah. like, I'm going to talk about this properly one day. Yeah. This is that day. Nice. So this collection came out in 2020, which by the way, when I went back and saw that, I was like, no fucking way did that come out in 2020. I feel like I've known about it for years, mm. but it's just 2020 was the longest year in the world. Yes. Um, and I absolutely devoured it that summer. It was recommended to me by friend of the podcast, Rhiannon, because mm-hmm. we both just love being gals. We both <laughs> love summer and that's just very much the vibe of this collection so it's a set of short stories most of them very 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 short i'm talking like a page or two Mm -hmm. um and it very much revels in like femininity um and like being a gal which is just fun Mm -hmm. um the dedication in it is for your girl eyes only from eve until the end (laughs) which i just think is yeah very sweet so this is the book that got me into lisa crossmith as a writer and even though I've read most of her work now, this is still my favourite. Mm. And I'm going to go and start off with this piece, which I always go back to at this time of year, because I find myself with like more time and wondering what to do with it. And this just inspires me. Okay. It's called Girl Heart Cake with Glitter Frosting. <laughs> Possible ingredients. Too much black eyeliner. Roses. Champagne from a can, champagne in a bottle. Music to watch boys to by Lana Del Rey. Pink, lavender cigarettes. Flower water, flower crowns. Formation by Beyonce. Glossy lips, glossy eyelids. Fetish featuring Gucci Mane by Selena Gomez. Red lipstick. Lip gloss in your pocket, lip gloss in your purse. Old lip gloss lost and found under the couch. Lip gloss that smells like birthday cake, lip gloss that smells like blueberry, lip gloss that smells like mango. Your natural hair. Lord humming at the beginning of Yellow Flicker Beat. Fairs and beers. Los Angeles, Nashville, Kentucky, Malibu. Miranda Lambert in a lighter. Milk by Kings of Leon. Expensive skincare routines. The Virgin Suicides. Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House. Green Green Summer Grass and Ice Blue Pool Water. Lindsay Weir dancing in her bedroom to Box of Rain. Sunflower Sunshine, Golden. Thirteen by Big Star. 
Rihanna as a fairy godmother, Zazie Beats, Harry Styles in a wallpapery, wildly patterned suit, chip nail polish in a mood ring, beach breath, sunscreen, taking your bra off, finally, and bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, dresses and leggings and cowboy boots, Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover by Sophie B. Hawkins, Vanilla, Cherry, Every Fiona Apple, Lens Flares, Kissing your black or brown or red or blonde or no-haired husband or boyfriend while he's sleeping. Kissing your black or brown or red or blonde or no-haired husband or boyfriend when he's awake. Pink quartz, amethyst, carnelian, aquamarine, red jasper, plum jasper, citrine, amber, padpra... <laughs> I can't say that word. Sapphire, etc. The Summer I Was 16 by Geraldine Connolly. Dancing Queen by ABBA. Killer Queen by Queen. Feather earrings and hoop earrings and groupies and Taylor Swift and Father John Misty and Father John Misty's hands in the smoke and lights. Jeff Buckley, Clementine and Honey, Patsy Cline, cool green iridescent lake water, beer can bonfires, Spice Night by Catherine Bowman, sparklers, twinkle lights, pale sugar, glitter, glitter, Jefferson Airplane, ring pops and blow pops and eyeshadow names. Looping cursive, folded paper, En Vogue and Tori Amos, Heart, Baseball, A League of Their Own, Denise Huxtable, Angela Chase, Felicity, Kerry Russell, Dorothy Dandridge, Eartha Kitt, Barbara Streisand, Audrey Hepburn, Cher, Marilyn Monroe movies, Swishy Swishy prom dresses, heels in hand, Lemonade, Lemonade, Bussing Neon, Confused Hearts, Blooming Hearts, Broken Hearts, Full Hearts, Ale 81 and Church Camp, Crosses, Peach Pop, Root Beer Floats, Popsicles, Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson, Mary Shelley, Judy Bloom, Work It by Missy Elliott, Bossy by Kellis, Shaving Legs and Kitchen Sinks, Secrets Spilled Like Wine, Pretty in Pink, Accidental Girlfriends, Stealing Beauty and a Bigger Splash and Call Me By Your Name, Every Summer Obsession Movie, Panting, Drinking, Licking, Blazing, Oprah Winfrey, Hayley Williams and Paramore, Serena Williams, Roxanne Gay, Sylvia Plath, Jenny Lewis, Does He Love You by Rilo Kelly, The Supremes, The Ronettes, Then He Kissed Me by The Crystals, Bubbly Pineapple Water, Tank Tops, Juicy Fruit, Tegan and Sarah, Amy Winehouse and Janis Joplin, Ella Fitzgerald Dancing in a Black Dress Next to Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland Singing a Big Fat Rose to Gene Kelly, Etta James Singing It's a Man's Man's World, Etta James Singing Anything, the Crown Affair's chess scene kisses. Steve McQueen spanking Anne Margaret in the Cincinnati Kid. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Villanelle's pink Molly Goddard dress in Killing Eve. Sandra O. Oh, Natalie Wood. Elizabeth Taylor, Maggie the Cat. Joshua Tree. Antonia Thomas. Sissy Spacek. Sissy Spacek's wardrobe in Badlands. Rookie Magazine. Zendaya. Bonnie Raitt. Stevie Nicks. Indigo Girls. Linda Ronstad singing You're No Good. Aretha Franklin singing Respect, Carly Simon singing You're So Vain, Tammy Wynette singing Stand By Your Man, Loretta Lynn singing Fist City, Margot Price, Princess Diana and Jackie O, Megan, Duchess of Sussex, Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge, Eve and a Pomegranate, Mary, Mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Bathsheba, Deborah, Esther, Queen Vashti, Dirty Dancing, Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia, Sylvia Robinson, Shaka Khan. The Tornado Loves You by Neko Chase. Coconuts, Strawberry Shampoo. Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. Lace, Velvet, Mesh, Tool, 
your bedroom, a candy-coloured starry ceiling sanctuary, Free Fallen by Tom Petty, an American Girl by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, American Girls by Counting Crows, A Round the Way Girl by LL Cool J, Your Natural Blush, Lolita, Orange Crush, Cherry Bomb by The Runaways, Flirting and Bar Lights, and every single heart dark or heart light muddy tomboy and frilly girly girl and bad girl and good girl and walking the edges nowhere and everywhere and in between living or can never really die dead directions warm or chill icy even oh i love it so that's not really a story no it's just a great list it's a list that's so good is it written like in a block of text yeah. or is it yeah just a full block of text yeah cool um but it just makes me feel like girls own summer <laughs> yeah but we also own christmas <laughs> so like boys can have spring yeah. and the rest of winter sure but i feel that whole passage just makes me be like yeah summer is a great time yeah. to be alive one of the books I was going to talk about, but I realised that I have two copies of this book and they're both at home, which is annoying. Oh. I don't have them here. Is The Virgin Suicides. Because that is just like... It is summer. Mm. It's really good. I've never read it, but I do want to. Yeah. There's a really nice edition of it out right now that I might get anyway. It's like the 20th anniversary one. Oh, exciting. Also, I love that like Father John Misty gets a shout out. I don't know why, he's just quite a niche. I knew you would like that. He's he's right there. I can see his vinyl <laughs> yeah. looking at me. <laughs> I like just the association of it. It feels like when you're like, you know when you're sunbathing and you're like thinking, mm. but you're half asleep because it's sunny. Yeah. That's what that feels like. It does, yeah. Oh, I just love it so much. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like this woman's mind, I was like, well, I'm in love with her. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to skip ahead a little and read a proper story, which is uh, actual romance, because we haven't really had one of those. Mm. I think just this was the first one that I read, and I really loved it, and so I think you'll enjoy it. So okay. here we go. It's called Two Cherries Under a Lavender Moon. The produce section sprinklers hissed on, sending the cool mist into showers across yellow patapan squash. Snake green zucchini and wild, dirty, white tasseled scallion ends. Astrid and Henry were standing with their hands gripping their cart handles. This is how they met. It was eleven o'clock at night. They both palmed their three pound green globe cabbages. Henry waited patiently as Astrid bagged hers, then she moved to the mushrooms as he bagged his. The cabbage is on sale. The sign doesn't say it, but if you tell the cashier she'll ring it up for you, Astrid said to Henry over her shoulder. No one else was in the produce section. Two aisles over, a young man was waxing the floor with a noisy machine. Oh, oh thank you, Henry said. Astrid was excited by his excitement, and he was a great weirdo to find at night in the produce section. I used to boil it, but not anymore. I fry it with bacon, or in bacon fat at least. And the purple cabbage doesn't taste the same if you do that. It's too tough. I like to shred the purple cabbage and eat it raw. I make coleslaw with it, Astrid said. Coleslaw, all right, awesome, Henry said before she knew he was Henry. At that point, she decided she was going to call him Cabbage. Astrid saw Cabbage in several different aisles before she left the grocery store that night. The first time, she smiled at him again and he did the same. The second time, she smiled at the ground while walking past him. She reached up for the oysters, got two small cans. The third time, she acted like she didn't see him at all. 
The following Wednesday, after ballet class and drinks with friends, Astrid stopped by the grocery store, thinking about seeing Cabbage again. She'd thought about him in flashes since seeing him the week before. She'd been busy. She'd made enough food so she didn't have to think about what to make for dinner every night. Roasted a chicken that would last for two days, used the leftovers in a big pot of white chilli. She'd gotten food out with the drinks and friends that Wednesday. Tapas and a strong minty mojito. She was practically bubbling over as she wheeled her cart to the produce section. And there Henry was, over by the apples. Apple Henry. Astrid said hi first. Hi, I remember you. Coleslaw, Henry said. Astrid wondered if that's what he'd been calling her in his mind. Coleslaw. She hoped so. That's me, Astrid said. Only the two of them in the produce section again. The same young man was waxing the floor with the same noisy machine, this time three aisles over. I made your coleslaw, by the way. I got green cabbage last Wednesday, but then went somewhere else and got purple cabbage and found a recipe on the internet. So technically I guess it wasn't your coleslaw, but it was inspired by you. Do you mind if I ask your name? Henry said. No, I don't mind, Astrid said. Henry laughed a little. Okay, then I will. What is your name? He asked, opening his arm across the air like a magician's assistant. She'd already decided that she would have let him saw her in half. Astrid. Henry, he said. Hi, Henry. Astrid's purple coleslaw, Henry said, almost like he was speaking only to himself. Oh, sounds psychedelic. I dig it. Astrid's purple coleslaw, he said again. I'm making zoodles soon, like lo mein zoodles, but zucchini noodles instead. Zoodles, she said, pointing over to the zucchinis. Zoodles, Henry said, guiding his cart over to them. I have this thing I hold in my hand and turn makes it into these spirals, like noodles, Astrid said, miming the movements. Henry picked up a zucchini like he'd never seen one before. He turned it over in his hands, smelled it. Astrid wondered if she was in love with him. Maybe this was what love felt like. It had been so long she barely remembered, but it did feel something like this, didn't it? Like watching someone look at something for the first time. Astrid joined him by the zucchinis and put six of them in a plastic bag, tied it, placed it gently in the top of her cart. She wished she knew Henry better, wished they'd known one another their whole lives. Yes, she was sure she was in love with him. This is what it felt like. She wanted to tell him to buy an eggplant. She wanted to see him standing across from her, holding the biggest, darkest, purple, glossiest one. You're full of supermarket goodness, he said to her. I like how you say supermarket. I say grocery store. Henry looked at Astrid the same way he looked at the zucchini. She checked his finger for a wedding band. No. Let me know how your zoodles turn out, she said. And although she wanted to stand there and talk to him, she also knew how men were. So she turned away from him and waved without looking back and decided to forgo the rest of the produce she needed. She went across the store to the frozen section so she wouldn't accidentally run into him in the other aisles and she breathed a sigh of relief when she didn't. Because yes, this was definitely love and to prove it she got on Facebook that night and happily typed Henry into the search bar. She scrolled through a lot of Henry's and didn't see a picture of cabbage. Her obsessiveness nipped at her heels before finally sinking its teeth in drawing blood. The next night she cranked Blana Del Rey, put on extra eyeliner and went to the grocery store just in case. No Henry, but the Lana Del Rey and the extra eyeliner made her feel sexy and powerful. Cool. As cool as the wind on her face as she drove home with the windows down. 
She was crying her eyeliner off and that was okay because the smudginess made her feel even sexier and more powerful. She mouthed the words after she finished brushing her teeth before bed. Sexy and powerful. She let her teeth smooth and catch for too long on her bottom lip. She drifted to sleep imagining herself and Henry out of the grocery store in the California desert instead. Henry, bearded and Jim Morrison mysterious, feeding her grapes. The poetry of their tongues. Their mouths, two cherries under a lavender moon. The following Wednesday, after ballet class and drinks with friends, Astrid put on extra eyeliner again and went to the grocery store. Saw Henry in the produce section. She wondered if Henry were a ghost, haunting it. Only on Wednesdays. Like every Wednesday, no matter what, he would be there in the produce section waiting for her. Was he even real on the other days? She recognised his back easily now. He was skinny and almost tall. He was standing there in an expensive-looking navy blue polo shirt. She touched his shoulder to make sure she couldn't put her hand right through him. Astrid the Zoodler, he said, smiling. Henry, I keep finding you here. Here in your supermarket, she said. You're a supermarket dream, he said, winking. You are, Astrid managed to get out. Well, the Zoodles were fantastic. Did you think I'd really make them, he asked. Yes, I trusted you. What's for dinner this week? How about dessert? Strawberries? she asked, lifting a plastic bag of organic ones into the air with both hands. She held it over her head, looked at him. I love strawberries. With chocolate and a light fluffy cake and some whipped cream, some dark coffee afterward, she said. Henry pulled out his phone, started typing. I'm writing this down, he said, and laughed like he couldn't help it. A cough, really. Good boy, she said. She heard the young man two aisles over turn on the noisy machine and begin waxing the floor. Sailing by Christopher Cross was piping from the speakers and the produce sprinklers hushed on. Astrid held her pale palm underneath the water. Supermarkets and yacht rock seem to go hand in hand, Henry said, looking up. She nodded. I came from ballet, she added, liking how it made her seem interesting. Do you do ballet to yacht rock? No, I don't, she said, laughing. Maybe you should. Have a good week, Henry, Astrid said, steering her cart away. Hey, he said behind her. She turned around. You too, he said. The days in between were becoming painful for Astrid. She wished every day were Wednesday. She found herself checking her phone from texts from him and then remembered that he didn't have her number. She didn't even know his last name. She googled the name Henry to see what came up and fell down a rabbit hole of Henry Cavill fan sites, pictures of him in his Superman costume, YouTube clips of his interviews. She found him cloyingly handsome, saccharine, his jawline and those perfectly white teeth in a neat row like some kind of fence. He didn't seem real, not as real as Cabbage Henry. She went to sleep thinking about him, woke up wondering if he was thinking about her, spent Thursday trying to convince herself she wasn't crazy, spent Friday convincing herself she was. The next Wednesday night, Henry was in a white t-shirt and jeans and so was Astrid. This is embarrassing, Henry said, pointing to himself and then her. You have good taste, she said, smiling. What do you have for me this week? Henry asked. Astrid was sad. This was all they'd ever be. He'd only ask her for recipes, never invite her to eat. He'd never ask her to get a coffee in the little grocery store cafe or ask for her phone number. Did love feel like this too? Like an empty cup? Sweet or savoury? she asked. How about this? Would you like to get a coffee? Over here, he pointed. And maybe help me with cheese? I think I want to focus on cheese, he said.
One aisle over, the young man was waxing the floor with the noisy machine. The light in her heart flickered on, the loneliness scattering to the corners. Yes, sometimes love felt like this too. Like grocery store coffee. Like cheese in a knife. Maybe. No. Yes. Yes, they would most certainly get married in the produce section on a Wednesday night. Astrid, teary-eyed in her after-ballet clothes, holding a misted bouquet of bok choy and curly kale and rainbow shard. And after Henry put the peach pit ring on her finger, she would put a cold strawberry in his hand at the exact moment the produce sprinklers turned on. The grocery store manager would click on Celebration by Cool and the Gang. The young man would turn off the noisy machine so they could hear the music better. They'd name their baby boy Apricot, their twin girls Persimmon and Plum. But first, Henry and Astrid would get a cake from the bakery and go home together, eat it in bed. Yes, love would sound like Africa by Toto, thumping and thumping. Lust was heady at first, but quickly turned bitter and left her thirstier, ravenous. But love, love should feel like being full. Love should feel like, taste like, sweet white buttercream and coconut, slathered and tightening all over her like paint, sweet white buttercream and coconut filling. Oh, <laughs> I literally wrote down... <laughs> Love is like watching someone looking at something for the first time. I have a, I have written about that. Oh, and so when I read sweet. that, I was like, "Oh man, that's so right into my soul." <laughs> oh, I loved that. I really need to read this. You really collection. do. Um, that's the longest story in it. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any ones that are longer than that. But I just, it's so simple. Yeah, and it's almost so stupid. Yeah, it reminds me of um like modern love. Yeah. Like a random interaction that someone would have in that show. Yeah, that's what it reminds me of as well. <laughs> I just think it's really cute. Yeah. It's like, oh I also love that she's like she is actually a bit insane. Like if you read <laughs> if you yeah. read too deeply into this you'd be like, This woman is crazy. But because it's so sweet. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> And I have one more that's very short, so don't worry. Sure. Um, it's a bit of a departure from the previous vibes, um, but here we go. You know that I love the way that Crossmith sketches characters super quickly. Mm-hmm. I had talked about this before, but I think this is the most impressive example of it. Okay. Um, and this is this is your summer heat for the episode, if anyone is looking for that. Okay. <laughs> this is less sweet. It's called You Got Me, and it is two pages long. Okay. Lowell called me woman. Woman, when's the last time you had your oil changed? Woman, have you seen my hat? I called him Low. Lowell had a cowboy heart. I would have married him simply for how his body slicked over when he played pool. The clacking of those pool balls was as a soundtrack to our relationship and how he'd say rack him and somehow make it the dirtiest, sweetest thing I'd ever heard. We knew each other, hung out before. This was different. This time we spent four consecutive, frothy, slippery nights together. Late nights hushed into early mornings without either of us noticing. Woman, I'm fixing to go to the gas station, he'd said, putting his hat on. It was Saturday afternoon. He never came back. I didn't call. Saturday night. Sunday. I didn't go to his favourite bar because I knew he'd be there, slicking over, shooting pool, saying Rackham to some girl who wasn't me. Monday. Tuesday. I thought about calling him, but I didn't. I went to work and came home. I had dinner with a man I didn't like. A man who said terribly generic things like, I love music. 
I swear I had to stop myself from dying right there at the table, from rolling my eyes as far back as they would go, from letting my body slam down as hard as it could and crash clinking the silverware to the floor. Wednesday, Thursday. I drove past Lowe's house, saw his truck out front. I didn't slow down. My whole body hurt. I prayed for rain, a purple-blue tempest, lightning slicing the sky. Friday. I went to the willow because he'd be there. I got a beer and leaned against the doorway, watched him. I listened for a screeching feedback sound when he locked eyes with me, like we shouldn't be that close to each other anymore, and even the walls of the bar knew it. The fuzzy hooker's green felt of that pool table knew it. I mouthed, fuck you, slowly, sipped his favourite beer. His face flashed, he raised his eyebrows and put, he put his pool stick down, told his friends he'd be just a sec. Woman, did you just cuss me? He asked, leaning. You walked out on me before anything got good and started. You're mad I left first? You didn't call me, he said, shrugging slow. His friends kept shooting pool. I tilted to watch them and didn't feel anything. You didn't want to be called, I said. Well, you got me now, woman. Lo took my beer and finished it. I listened for the hooves of his cowboy heart galloping towards me and I heard them. Or maybe it was a dump truck rumbling by or a train or the thickening thunder of that storm I was praying for. What I'm saying, I beat him in a game of pool and let him take me home. What I'm saying, I let him take everything. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's like the most quickly done <laughs> yeah. love story that I've ever heard. And I was like, <laughs> I feel like I know exactly who these people are. Yeah, definitely. And that's one thing I do love about this collection is the amount of different voices. Mm-hmm. I find that really hard to do. And there's like yeah. over a hundred stories in here and not one of them sounds like the same person unless it's meant to. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> well done. It is very well done. <laughs> um, so yeah, I very much <laughs> recommend that as a summer read because it's really fun. Yeah. No, I definitely, because you've talked about it so many times, I'm just like, yeah, I need I need to read this. Yeah, well, it's on the goddamn shelf, Emily. Just I know. take it whenever you like. You know <laughs> how many books I have to read. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's at a level where it's stressful now. <laughs> Tell me your third pick. My third pick. So, I quite like reading a series during the summer. Okay. Uh, normally, purely just because I have more time. Mm. And this is one that I haven't talked about in here because I, f- I find it quite hard to pick quotes out because the story is really fast-paced and so most quotes feel like a spoiler. Right. But I adored the series. So I'm going to talk about it today where I don't have to go like quite as in-depth mm. as I normally would. So the series is The Blood of Stars duology by Elizabeth Lim. The two books are called Spin the Dawn, which came out in 2019, and Unravel the Dusk, which came out in 2020. They have the most stunning covers. Wow. They really do. Yeah. Like, I really recommend just Googling the UK covers because they're gorgeous. So, Spin the Dawn begins the duology and is about a young woman called Maya who dreams of becoming the greatest tailor in the land, but only men can be tailors. Okay. And when Maya's ailing father is invited to the Summer Palace to compete for the position of the Imperial Tailor, she jumps at this opportunity to go in his place. So she goes in disguise and pretends to be her brother. Okay. So that she can become the Emperor's Tailor. 
she does pretty well minor spoiler but not really does get the job um but then she's given one final big challenge she has to create three magic gowns for the emperor's bride to be one sewn from the laughter of the sun one sewn from the tears of the moon and one sewn from the blood of stars that's so fucking cool. I know. So <laughs> Maya then has to go on a quest to retrieve these materials. And she is accompanied by the court enchanter, who seems to have figured out that she's not who she says she is. So it's this wonderful mix of like a competition for her to be the tailor, this magical quest, and then a slow burn romance because we know I love a slow burn romance. The, the quest um, materials are really giving me into the woods. Yeah. It's very like, oh, you have to go do this. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and I'm just like, no ex- no explanation. Okay, okay. sure. Sweet, yeah. <laughs> so Unravel the Dusk is harder to explain without spoiling what happens at the end of Spin the Dawn. But it basically follows directly in the aftermath of the first book. And even though it doesn't follow the sort of quest structure, it still has a lot of like disguises and duality and strange magic. And again without saying too much, it basically kind of deals with the consequences of what happens when you make three magic gowns from materials that you probably shouldn't have access to. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, like I said, I'm not going to read out too much from these series because I just the quote I, I just found it really difficult but what I have done is um, picked a couple quotes and they're both actually just the prologue of each book. Okay. So this is the first page of Spin the Dawn. Ask me to spin the finest yarn or thread and I can do it faster than any man, even with my eyes closed. Yet ask me to tell a lie and I will stumble and falter to think of one. I have never had a talent for spinning tales. My brother Keaton knows this better than anyone. Even though his brows rise once or twice as I tell him everything, of the three impossible tasks I was given, of the demon and ghosts I encountered on my journey, and of the enchantment that surrounded our emperor, my brother believes me. Baba, my father, does not. He sees through the shadows I hide behind. That beyond the smile I give Keaton, my eyes are red and raw. They are swollen from crying for hours, days even. What he cannot see is that in spite of the tears drying on my cheeks, my heart is hard. I dread reaching the end of my story, for it is full of knots that I haven't had the courage to cut free. Distant drums pound. They draw closer with every second, a stirring reminder of the little time I have left to make my choice. If I go back, I leave behind who I am. I will never see my family again, never see my face in the mirror again, never hear my name called again. But I would give up the sun and moon and stars if it meant saving him. Him, the boy with no name and yet a thousand names. The boy whose hands are stained with the blood of stars. The boy I love. Oh, wow. What a beginning! The I'll never see my face in the mirror is unnerving. Yeah, I can't explain that. No. Um, But yeah. Mm. (laughs) So yeah, I love how this and the entire book is filled with sewing imagery, like the threads, the knots, the spinning tails. Mm. And it also introduces that magic we'll discover. Like she just casually mentions the demon 
you know. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, also, like, what does it mean that there's going to be a boy whose hands are stained with, with the, the blood, blood of, of stars? stars. <laughs> that's something I've never heard stars described as having viscera before. No, but it's very interesting how it's written, mm. I will say. So, yeah, now I'm going to read the prologue of book two, Unravel the Dusk. I promise it doesn't have spoilers. <laughs> she talks about quite a few deaths, but they're all ones that you know about at the start of Spin the Dawn anyway. Okay. So I'm not, I promise I'm not spoiling anything. She does mention that she becomes the Emperor's Tailor, but I've already told you that. Um, so yeah, this is the beginning of book two. It's a little bit longer, this one, but it's very beautiful. Okay, I'm ready. I had a mother once. She taught me to spin the finest yarn and thread made from silkworms raised in our courtyard of mulberry trees. Patiently, she would soak thousands of cocoons, and together we'd wind the gossamer threads into wooden spills. When she saw how nimbly my little fingers worked the wheel, spinning silk like strands of moonlight, she urged my father to take me on his, as his seamstress. Learn well from Baba, she told me when he agreed. He's the best tailor in Gangson, and if you study hard, one day you will be too. Yes, Mama. I'd said obediently. Perhaps if she told me then that girls couldn't become tailors, my story would have turned out differently. But alas. While Mama raised my brothers, brave Finlay, thoughtful Sendo, and wild Keton, Baba taught me to cut and stitch and embroider. He trained my eyes to see beyond simple lines and shapes, to manipulate shadows and balance beauty with structure. He made me handle every kind of cloth, from coarse cottons to fine silks, to gain mastery over fabrics and feel how they draped over the skin. He made me redo all the stitches if I skipped one, and from my mistakes I learned how a single seam could be the difference between a garment that fit and one that did not, how a careless rip could be mended but not undone. Without Baba's training, I would never have become the Emperor's tailor. But it was Mama's faith in me that gave me the heart to even try. In the evenings, after our shop closed, she'd rub balm onto my sore fingers. Baba's working you hard, she would say. I don't mind, Mama. I like sewing. She lifted my chin so our eyes were level. Whatever she saw made her sigh. You really are your father's daughter. All right, but remember, tailoring is a craft, but it's also an art. Sit by the window, feel the light, and watch the clouds and the birds. She paused, looking over my shoulder at the patterns I'd been cutting all day. And don't forget to have fun, Maya. You should make something for yourself, too. But I don't want anything. Mama tilted her head thoughtfully. As she changed the burnt-out joss sticks by our family altar, she picked up one of the three statues of Amana lining the shrine. They were plainly carved, faces and dresses washed out by the sun. Why don't you make three dresses for our mother goddess? My eyes widened. Mama, I couldn't. They would have to be the most beautiful dresses in the world, she finished for me. She tussled my hair and kissed my forehead. I'll help you. We'll dream them together. I hugged Mama, burying my face in her chest and holding her so tight a laugh tinkled out of her throat like the soft strokes of a dulcimer. What I would give to hear that laugh again. To see Mama one more time. To touch her face and comb my fingers through her thick braid of black hair as it loosened into waves rippling against her back. I remember I could never weave silk as soft as her hair, no matter how I tried, 
and I remember I used to think the freckles on her cheeks and arms were stars. Keaton and I would sit on her lap, me trying to count them, Keaton trying to sweep them off. The story she'd tell us. It was Mama who dreamed of leaving Gangsan and living by the sea. She recounted to us the tales she'd grown up with, with fearless sailors, water dragons and golden fish that granted wishes, tales Sendo drank in with his soul. She believed in fairies and ghosts, in demons and gods. She taught me to sew amulets for passing travellers, to cut paper clothes to burn for our ancestors, to write charms to ward off evil spirits. Most of all, she believed in fate. Keaton says it isn't my fate to become a tailor like Baba, I sobbed to her one afternoon, weeping from the sting of my brother's words. He says girls can only become seamstresses, and if I work too hard I won't have any friends, and no boy will ever want me. Don't listen to your brother, Mama said. He doesn't understand what a gift you have, Maya. Not yet. She dried my tears with the edge of her sleeve. What matters is, do you want to be a tailor? Yes, I said in a small voice. More than anything, but I don't want to be alone. You won't be, she promised. It isn't your fate. Tailors are closer to fate than most. Do you know why? I thought hard. Baba says the threads he stitches into his work give it life. It's more than that, replied Mama. Tailoring is a craft that even the gods respect. There's something magical about it. Even the simplest thread has great power. Power? Have I told you about the threads of fate? I shook my head. Everyone has a thread tied to someone, a person who's meant to be by your side and make you happy. Mine is tied to Baba. I glanced at my wrists and ankles. I don't see anything. You can't see it, Mama chuckled gently. Only the gods can. The thread may be long, stretching over mountains and rivers, and it may be years before you find its end, but you'll know when you meet the right one. What if someone cuts it, I worried. Nothing can break it, for destiny is the strongest promise. You'll be bound to each other no matter what happens. The way I'm bound to you and Baba, and Finlay, and Sendo. I was mad at Keaton, so I didn't care if my youngest brother and I were tied together. It's similar, but different. Mama touched my nose and rubbed it affectionately. One day you'll see. That night I took a spool of red thread and cut a string to tie around my ankle. I don't want my brothers to see it and make fun of me, so I tucked the loose end under the cuff of my pant leg. But as I walked with my secret tickling my ankle, I wondered if I'd feel something when I met the person I was fated to be with. Would the string give a little tug? Would it stretch and bind to its other half? I wore that string around my ankle for months. Little by little it frayed, but my faith in fate did not. Until fate took Mama from me. It came for her slowly, over many months, like it came for the cypress tree outside our shop house. Every day, leaves trickled from its spindly arms, only a few at first, but more and more as autumn loomed. Then, one day, I woke up to find all the branches bare, and our cypress tree was no more, at least until spring. Mama had no spring. Her autumn began with a stray cough here and there, always covered up with a smile. She forgot to add cabbage to the pork dumplings Finlay loved so much, and she forgot the names of the heroes in the story she'd tell Sendo and me before we went to sleep. 
She even let Keaton win at cards and gave him too much money to spend on his errands in the marketplace. I hadn't given much thought to these slips. Mama would have told us if she wasn't feeling well. Then one winter morning, just as I finished adorning our statues of Amana with our three dresses, of the sun, the moon and the stars, Mama fainted in the kitchen. I shook her. I was still small and her head was heavy when I lifted it to rest on my lap. Baba, I screamed. Baba, she won't wake up. That morning, everything changed. Instead of praying to my ancestors to wish them well in their afterlife, I prayed that they spare Mama. I prayed to Amana, to the three statues I'd painted and clothed to let her live, to let Mama see my brothers and me grow up, and to not let her leave Baba, who loved her so much, alone. Every time I closed my eyes and pictured the future, I saw my family whole. I saw Mama next to Baba, laughing and teasing us all with the fragrant smells of her cooking. I saw my brothers surrounding me, Finlay reminding me to sit straight, Sendo slipping me an extra tangerine and Keaton pulling on my braids. How wrong I was. Mama died a week before my eighth birthday. I spent my birthday sewing white mourning clothes for my family, which we wore for the next 100 days. That year, the winter felt especially cold. I cut the red thread off my ankle. Seeing how broken Baba was without Mama, I didn't want to be tied to anyone and suffer the same pain. As the years passed, my faith in the gods faded and I stopped believing in magic. I shuttered my dreams and poured myself into keeping our family together, into being strong for Baba, for my brothers, for myself. Every time a little happiness dared to seep into the cracks of my heart and try to make it full again, fate intervened to remind me I couldn't escape my destiny. Fate took my heart and crushed it little by little. When Finlay died, then Sendo, and when Keaton returned with broken legs and ghosts in his eyes. The Maya of yesterday picked up those pieces and painstakingly sewed them back together, but I was no longer that Maya. Beginning today, things would be different. Beginning today, when fate caught me, I'd meet it head on and make it my own. Beginning today, I would have no heart. Well, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Bit darker. Sad. <laughs> I know. But I love how it brings in one of our favourite Chinese mythologies, which yeah, is the Red, the String, Red of Fate, String of Fate, which is obviously such a great story to bring into a book about magical sewing. Mm. <laughs> and it really reminds me of when we did the like our mythology and folklore series and we were talking about Cersei and how like that had a lot of like imagery about like weaving weaving yeah there was a few books that we did around that time that you were talking about yeah weaving yeah no definitely so yeah i know i've not shared like a great amount of context or content i guess from this series but i really love it it's like really fast paced the first book especially has the structure of like the challenge and the quest and then book two feels like a much deeper dive into the characters and also does something that I don't think you actually see a lot in fantasy um, that I said before, which is that Maya has to deal with the consequences mm. of all the like powerful stuff that she did in book one. I just think that's quite a unique yeah, that's part of it. Cool. And yeah, it is, like a, it is like an adventure story as well. And they, they go through lots of different, what's the word? 
terrains mm. um like they're like in the desert and then they're in the mountains and then it's like <laughs> it's like it's just quite a cool like fun like summer reads i think so yeah it's a great series i don't see a lot of people talking about it elizabeth lim also wrote six crimson cranes which came oh, out last yeah. year um which is also wonderful and that seems to have been a bit bigger yeah. i think and that is in the same world as this duology okay they are like connected so yeah that's do you know that. what's unusual about that one for books that you tend to bring is that it's in first person? Yeah, I, I read. Like, a, I do read a mix, but yeah, I, I, I mostly like end up reading fantasy, third person. I feel like a lot of fantasy is third person. Yeah, I think it's because it's it can be easier to explain a world in third person. I think, mm-hmm. or the, if, when you do it in first person, the struggle is that you have to make your character explain everything <laughs> you have to you have to interact with all the parts of the world yeah yeah, yeah. you can just do a big setting in third person yeah but no yeah i think i think she does it really well in mm-hmm. first person actually especially because it's such a like i said especially book two is so deep yeah <laughs> in the character psyche it's very good um i love that i love that writing style yeah it's lovely it feels quite again this is something i talk about all the time it feels very fairy tale like Mm. but it's quite dark (laughs) as well yeah so yeah what what's your last one well um (laughs) so my last one i just want to preface by saying i love summer right i do (laughs) but if you're having a bad summer yeah it's the worst because it feels like it's mocking you (laughs) Yeah, I get like that. the sunny weather and everyone's having a great time and if you're having the worst time it's just horrible especially here in Scotland because the sun doesn't set until like almost midnight mm-hmm. so I wanted to bring in some shit summer representation <laughs> and what better to do that than some Sylvia Plath yeah so I have the bell jar wonderful which is her autobiographical <laughs> novel and yes okay this is a novel about a woman who's trying and failing to kill herself right that's just that's the plot she keeps trying to kill herself and she keeps not managing to do it it's really dark but the reason that i love it so much is that it's also very very funny so i'm just going to read a couple of my favorite passages out Mm -hmm. and if anyone wants to like wallow in a sad girl summer then this is the book for you um so this is the very beginning of the book and i feel like it really sets us up for this Also, like, so this is the 60s, the 50s, so just bear in mind that Sylvia's over time, okay? (laughs) Chapter one. (laughs) It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. I'm stupid about executions. The idea of being electrocuted makes me sick, and that's all there was to read about in the papers goggle-eyed headlines staring up at me on every street corner and at the fusty, peanut-smelling mouth of every subway. It had nothing to do with me, but I couldn't help wondering what it would be like being burned alive all along your nerves. I thought it must be the worst thing in the world. New York was bad enough. By nine in the morning, the fake country-wet freshness that somehow seeped in overnight evaporated like the tail end of a sweet dream. Mirage grey at the bottom of their granite canyons, the hot streets wavered in the sun, the car tops sizzled and glittered, and the dry, cindery dust blew into my eyes and down my throat. I kept hearing about the Rosenbergs over the radio, and at the office I couldn't get them out of my mind. It was like the first time I saw a cadaver. 
For weeks afterwards, the cadaver's head, or what there was left of it, floated up behind my eggs and bacon at breakfast, and behind the face of Buddy Willard, who was responsible for my seeing it in the first place, and pretty soon I felt as if it was carrying that cadaver's head around with me on a string, like some black, noseless balloon stinking of vinegar. I knew there was something wrong with me that summer, because all I could think about was the Rosenbergs and how stupid I'd been to buy all those uncomfortable, expensive clothes, hanging limp as a fish in my closet, and how all the little successes I'd totted up so happily at college fizzled to nothing outside the slick marble and plate glass fronts along Madison Avenue. I was supposed to be having the time of my life. I was supposed to be the envy of thousands of other college girls just like me all over America who wanted nothing more than to be tripping about in those same size seven patent leather shoes I'd bought in, Bo- I'd bought in Bloomingdale's one lunch hour with a black patent leather belt and black patent leather pocketbook to match. And when my picture came out in the magazine the twelve of us were working on, drinking martinis in a skimpy imitation silver lame bodice stuck onto a big fat cloud of white tulle, and on some starlight roof in the company of several anonymous young men with all-American bone structures, hired or loaned for the occasion, everybody would think I must be having a real whirl. Look at what can happen in this country, they'd say. A girl lives in some out-of-the-way town for 19 years, so poor she can't afford a magazine, and then she gets a scholarship to college and wins a prize here and a prize there and ends up steering New York like her own private car. Only I wasn't steering anywhere, not even myself. I just bumped from my hotel to work and to parties and from parties to my hotel and back to work like a numb trolley bus. I guess I should have been excited the way most of the other girls were, but I couldn't get myself to react. I felt very still and very empty, the way the eye of a tornado must feel, moving dolly along in the middle of the surrounding hullabaloo. (laughs) I love that everything Sylvia Plath writes sounds like she should be a newspaper editor in the 40s. (laughs) Yeah, it does actually. It's quite, it's got like a cadence to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like who even says hullabaloo and gets away with it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a bad summer. It's a bad summer for Sylvia, Mm -hmm. for, well, for the narrator. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Who I don't actually think gets a name, so you know. Mm-hmm. Esther. No, her name is Esther. Okay. Um, but yeah, next passage is one I actually dissected in my master's. Mm. But I still love it, and I love it because it has one of my favourite ever descriptions of rain. So I imagine that if you're a person that hates summer, or who's depressed in the summer, its description of movies will be relatable mm. as well. Okay. When we came out of the sunly lit interior of the ladies' day offices, the streets were grey and fuming with rain. It wasn't the nice kind of rain that rinses you clean, but the sort of rain I imagine they must have in Brazil. It flew straight down from the sky and drops the size of coffee saucers, and hit the hot sidewalks with a hiss that sent clouds of steam writhing up from the gleaming dark concrete. My secret hope of spending the afternoon alone in Central Park died in the glass egg beater of ladies' days revolving doors. I found myself spewed out through the warm rain and into the dim, throbbing cave of a cab, together with Betsy and Hilda and Emily Ann Offenbach, a prim little girl with a bun of red hair and a husband and three children in Tenick, New York, New Jersey. The movie was very poor. It starred a nice little blonde girl who looked like June Allison but was really somebody else, and a sexy black-haired girl who looked like Elizabeth Taylor but was also somebody else, and two big, broad-shouldered boneheads with names like Rick and Gil. It was a football romance and it was in Technicolor. I hate Technicolor. 
Everybody in a Technicolor movie seems to feel obliged to wear a lurid new costume in each new scene and to stand around like a clothes horse with a lot of very green trees or very yellow wheat or very blue ocean rolling away for miles and miles in every direction. Most of the action in this picture took place in a football stands, with the two girls waving and cheering in smart suits with orange chrysanthemums the size of cabbages on their lapels, or in a ballroom, where the girls swooped across the floor with their dates and dresses like something out of Gone with the Wind, and then sneaked off to the powder room to say nasty, intense things to each other. Finally, I could see the nice girl was going to end up with the nice football hero and the sexy girl was going to end up with nobody because the man named Gil had only wanted a mistress and not a wife all along and was now packing off to Europe on a single ticket. At about this point, I began to feel peculiar. I looked round me at all the rows of wrapped little heads with the same silver glow on them at the front and the same black shadow on them at the back and they looked like nothing more or less than a lot of stupid moon brains. I felt in terrible danger of puking. I didn't know whether it was the awful movie giving me a stomachache or all that caviar I had eaten. I'm going back to the hotel, I whispered to Betsy through the half-dark. Betsy was staring at the screen with deadly concentration. Don't you feel good, she whispered, barely moving her lips. No, I said, I feel like hell. So do I, I'll come back with you. We slipped out of our seats and said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, down the length of our row while the people grumbled and hissed and shifted in their rain boots and umbrellas to let us pass. And I stepped on as many feet as I could because it took my mind off this enormous desire to puke that was ballooning up in front of me so fast I couldn't see round it. The remains of a tepid rain were still sifting down when we stepped out into the street. Betsy looked a fright. The bloom was gone from her cheeks and her drained face floated in front of me, green and sweating. We fell into one of those yellow checkered cabs that are always waiting at the curb when you're trying to decide whether or not you want a taxi, and by the time we reached the hotel, I had puked once and Betsy had puked twice. The cab driver took the corners with such momentum that we were thrown together, first on one side of the back seat and then on the other. Each time one of us felt sick, she would lean over quietly as if she'd dropped something and was picking it up off the floor, and the other one would hum a little and pretend to be looking out the window. The caviar driver seemed to know what we were doing, even so. Hey, he protested, driving through a light that had just turned red. You can't do that in my cab, you'd better get out and do it in the street. But we didn't say anything and I guess he figured we were almost at the hotel so he didn't make us get out until we pulled up in front of the main entrance. We didn't dare wait to add up the fare. We stuffed a pile of silver into the cabbie's hand and dropped a couple of Kleenexes to cover the mess on the floor and ran in through the lobby and onto the empty elevator. Luckily for us, it was a quiet time of day. Betsy was sick again in the elevator and I held her head. Then I was sick and she held mine. Usually after a good puke, you feel better right away. We hugged each other and then said goodbye and went off to opposite ends of the hall to lie down in our own rooms. There is nothing like puking with somebody to make you into old friends. But the minute I shut the door behind me and undressed and dragged myself onto the bed, I felt worse than ever. I felt I just had to go to the toilet. I struggled into my white bathrobe with the blue cornflowers on it and staggered down to the bathroom. Betsy was already there. I could hear her groaning behind the door, so I hurried on around the corner to the bathroom in the next wing. I thought I would die, it was so far. I sat on the toilet and leaned my head over the edge of the washbowl and thought I was losing my guts and my dinner both. The sickness rolled through me in great waves. After each wave it would fade away and leave me limp as a wet leaf and shivering all over and then I would feel it rising up in me again and the glittering white torture chamber tiles under my feet and over my head and on all four sides closed in and squeezed me to pieces. 
I don't know how long I kept at it. I let the cold water in the bowl go on running loudly with the stopper out, so anyone who came by would think I was washing my clothes, and then when I felt reasonably safe, I stretched out on the floor and lay quite still. It didn't seem to be summer anymore. I could feel the winter shaking my bones and banging my teeth together, and the big white hotel towel I had dragged down with me lay under my head, numb as a snowdrift. <laughs> it's just like very not fun. <laughs> no, I hate vomit. I hate I have it. to sit through that whole thing. Yeah, without saying anything. <laughs> I know. I hate it too. I hate it too. Um, but I also think it's like one of the best descriptions of being sick that I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, no, that is true. Like being sick in the back. There's nothing less dignified than being sick in the back of a taxi. I don't think I've ever been sick in a taxi. I think I've been about to be sick in the back of a taxi mm. once and it was enough to just be like, nope, yeah. that's the worst thing ever. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I have one more passage. So the trouble with summer, I think, is that it is so relentless and it makes people melancholy and it's only <laughs> truly amazing when you're little. Like, I'll, I still love mm. it, but I feel like when you're little, it's like the best. Yeah. Um, and so this... This final passage takes my beloved concept of a summer fling and kind of sees right through it, which I hate, but I also love. Okay. Um, so the narrator is having a very reluctant kind of love affair with this man called Constantine, um, which I think is a great name. Sorry if you can hear what is most likely Stranger Things, by the way. Oh, yeah. Our neighbour. Our downstairs neighbour's really loud, but, you know, we move. <laughs> Of course, Constantine was much too short, but in his own way he was handsome, with light brown hair and dark blue eyes and a lively, challenging expression. He could almost have been an American. He was so tan and had such good teeth, but I could tell straight away that he wasn't. He had what no American man I've ever met has had, and that's intuition. From the start, Constantine guessed that I wasn't any protégé of Mrs Willard's. I raised an eyebrow here and dropped a dry little laugh there and pretty sure we were both openly raking Mrs Willard over the coals and I thought, this Constantine won't mind if I'm too tall and don't know enough languages and haven't been to Europe. He'll see through all that stuff to what I really am. Constantine drove me to the UN in his old green convertible with cracked, comfortable brown leather seats in the top down. He told me his tan came from playing tennis and when we were sitting there side by side, flying down the streets in the open sun, he took my hand and squeezed it and I felt happier than I'd been since I was about nine and running along the hot white beaches with my father the summer before he died. And while Constantine and I sat in one of those hushed plush auditoriums in the UN next to a stern muscular Russian girl with no makeup who was a simultaneous interpreter like Constantine, I thought how strange it had never occurred to me before that I was only purely happy until I was nine years old. After that, in spite of the Girl Scouts and the piano lessons and the watercolour lessons and the dancing lessons and the sailing camp, all of which my mother scrimped to give me, and college with crewing in the mist before breakfast and black bottom pies and the new little firecrackers of ideas going off every day, I had never really been happy again. I stared through the Russian girl in her double-breasted grey suit, rattling off idiom after idiom in her own unknowable tongue, which Constantine said was the most difficult part because the Russians didn't have the same idioms as our idioms, and I wished with all my heart that I could crawl into her and spend the rest of my life barking out one idiom after another. It mightn't make me any happier, but it would be one more little pebble of efficiency among all the other pebbles. Then Constantine and the Russian girl interpreter and the whole bunch of black and white and yellow men arguing 
down there behind their labelled microphones, seemed to move off at a distance. I saw their mouths going up and down without a sound, as if they were sitting on a deck of a departing ship, stranding me in the middle of a huge silence. I started adding up all the things I couldn't do. I began with cooking. My grandmother and my mother were such good cooks that I left everything to them. They were always trying to teach me one dish or another, but I would just look on and say, yes, yes, I see, while the instructions slid through my head like water, and then I'd always spoil what I did so nobody would ask me to do it again. I remember Jodie, my best and only girlfriend at college in my freshman year, making me scrambled eggs at her house one morning. They tasted unusual, and when I asked her if she'd put anything extra in them, she said cheese and garlic salt. I asked her who told her to do that, and she said nobody. She just thought it up. But then, she was a practical and a sociology major. I didn't know shorthand either. This meant I couldn't get a good job after college. My mother kept telling me no one wanted a plain English major. But an English major who knew shorthand was something else again. Everybody would want her. She would be in demand among all the up-and-coming young men, and she would transcribe letter after thrilling letter. The trouble was, I hated the idea of serving men in any way. I wanted to dictate my own thrilling letters. Besides, those little shorthand symbols in the book my mother showed me seemed just as bad as let T equal time and let S equal the total distance. My list grew longer. I was a terrible dancer. I couldn't carry a tune. I had no sense of balance, and when we had to walk down a narrow board with our hands out and our books on our heads in gym class, I always fell over. I couldn't ride a horse or ski, the two things I wanted to do most because they cost too much money. I couldn't speak German or read Hebrew or write Chinese. I didn't even know where most of the odd, out-the-way countries the UN men in front of me represented fitted on the map. For the first time in my life, sitting there in the soundproof heart of the UN building, between Konstantin, who could play tennis as well as simultaneously interpret, and the Russian girl who knew so many idioms, I felt dreadfully inadequate. The trouble was, I had been inadequate all along. I simply hadn't thought about it. The one thing I was good at was winning scholarships and prizes, and that era was coming to an end. I felt like a racehorse in a world without racetracks, or a champion college footballer suddenly confronted by Wall Street in a business suit, his days of glory shrunk to a little gold cup on his mantle, with a date engraved on it like the date on a tombstone. I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree of a story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband in a happy home and children, and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant professor, and another fig was E.G., the amazing editor, and another fig was Europe and Africa and South America, and another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila, and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions, and another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion, and beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest, and as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one they plopped to the ground at my feet. Constantine's restaurant smelt of herbs and spices and sour cream. All the time I had been in New York, I had never found such a restaurant, I only found those heavenly har hamburger places where they serve giant hamburgers and soup of the day and four kinds of fancy cake at a very clean counter facing a very long, glary mirror. To reach this restaurant, we had to climb down seven dimly lit steps into a sort of cellar. 
Travel posters plastered the smoke-dark walls, like so many picture windows overlooking Swiss lakes and Japanese mountains and African veldts and thick, dusty bottle candles that seemed for centuries to have wet their coloured waxes, red over blue over green, in a fine three-dimensional lace, cast a circle of light round each table where the faces floated, flushed and flame-like themselves. I don't know what I ate, but I felt immensely better after the first mouthful. It occurred to me that my vision of the fig tree and all the fat figs that withered and fell to the earth might well have arisen from the profound void of an empty stomach. Constantine kept refilling our glasses with a sweet Greek wine that tasted of pine bark, and I found myself telling him how I was going to learn German and go to Europe and be a war correspondent like Maggie Higgins. I felt so fine by the time we came to yogurt and strawberry jam that I decided I would let Constantine seduce me. (laughs) (laughs) I adore that passage. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that, like, fig tree metaphor broke my brain the Mm, first time that mm -hmm. I read it, because I was like, oh my god, this is why I can't make a decision on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I also really enjoy the description of the candles. Mm, Yeah, I liked that as well. But yeah. I stand by the fact that this is one of the best books ever written, even though it's one of the most depressing books that I've ever <laughs> read. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that anyone that would be put off because it would be too sad, I have convinced that it's very lively, even though it is all about death. Yeah, yeah. So that is my that is my third summer pick. Nice. <laughs> Woo! That's us. Ooh, that was a long one. Have you missed us? <laughs> well, it's fine because you won't have to put up with us for a while. Yeah. We will be back on Halloween. Halloween. With our yeah. Halloween special. But for now, it's just just summer in the void for all of you. <laughs> if you have any comments or questions in our email, it's infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. And yeah, please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. Anything else? Nah, I'm good. Cheers to that. Happy summer. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs)